Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. This is Drew. What's happening, everybody? Yo, yo, yo. So today, for this episode, we have a very exceptionally special guest with us. The man, the myth, the legend. We have Imagine? here... Legend, you know. It's more than a legend. It's more legend. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he's a legend. Never heard of that one before. He, he is our friend. He has been on the show before. And as I've, I I just said, he is a legend. We have our buddy, Alexander Shanus. Say what up. What up? It almost sounded like I was being introduced on some sort of talk show host. And I'm as you're like going through this long crawl of an introduction, like I'm walking down the stage toward my chair. That's what happens when you get on a podcast with a couple of guys that grew up watching Jerry Springer. That makes that's a fair point. <laughs> and, and over the and course like, of this podcast, at some point, we're gonna bash you in the back of the head with a folding chair. <laughs> Is this oh! Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Hello. I'm I'm, I'm here. here. I'm just not I'm just don't know how to process all this information coming at me and the chairs. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm well, literally looking over my shoulder now. Well, it's uh, it's good to have you on, Shanus, because uh, we're we're covering a very special topic today. We're we're gonna be covering a book that has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, there's been a lot of hullabaloo about library books being banned, and uh, one of the ones that have been the most prominent was *Mouse* by Art Spiegelman. And we thought we'd take this episode and this opportunity, since this book is just so prominent at the moment, to Discuss what this book is about. Maybe talk about the the controversy a little bit. Talk about what's going on in the news with it, and you know, just give our take on it and discuss why the book is important and what people are missing out on when they decide to close their eyes and ears to it. Yeah, I, I appreciate the invitation. I mean, if anything, this this book probably has more of a personal, um, I guess, attachment to me. Uh, but uh, you know, I was gonna ask you like, what was the reason for having this book being discussed right now of all times? But yeah, so I appreciate you mentioning that. No, I mean, yeah, that's it's it's something that's always been on our mind. Uh, we've we've it's it's a classic of a book. It's something that's world. Re- it's well, I don't know if it's world renowned, but it's pretty renowned. It's pretty no, recognized I, I in a lot of literary circles. Okay. Yeah, it's been. I think yeah. it's translated into multiple languages, right? Yeah, it's been translated into a bunch of different languages. Okay, okay. But I, I, I'm really glad to know this. You know, the Holocaust has been on both your minds for such a long time. You know, most yeah. people don't think about it these days anymore. Yeah. Um. Some might argue that it's on our mind a little too much, but. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just as far as a, a book go, it's something that we've always wanted to discussed it's, it's on a couple of our uh lists of ours and um you know uh, uh scholars and academics have a lot of high praise for it and it's something that's definitely worth a lot of praise but uh i think as a matter of circumstance uh because of everything that's happened and because uh it was a book that was part of this ban it's i i guess i just felt I don't know about you guys, but I I felt like there was a lot of a little bit of immediacy 
when it came to talking about it because of everything in the news, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, given the fact that you do to run a, a comic podcast, the moment there is any kind of banning of any kind of literature, like, I don't know, it, it would feel almost like, I guess, ignorant to just stay away from the discussion. Yeah. And, you know, again, seeing as how this was a book that we've wanted to discuss in other episodes, uh, the fact that it's just forefront right now just meant that, yeah, like you said, we we kind of had a duty to talk about it. You know, our our sacred ritualistic right to to discuss all things comics. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So if they were like ban like Rob Liefeld comics, you'd be on the podcast talking about them, too. I mean, I'd probably be mocking them. <laughs> <laughs> I might be dancing on its what's it called on its the metaphorical grave. Metaphorical grave, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would get my my cleats and I would just do a jig. But you know, other than that, uh, Drew, did you want to go into some of the backgrounds uh, of of the book? Um, just you know, just to give people our good listeners some context. Sure, sure. So let me first preface this by saying that we recognize how important and significant Mouse is. It's one of the most significant American comics of all time. It's been the subject of countless academic, scholarly, and critical analyses. I don't know if we're going to say anything new about Mouse that will unlock its secrets to anyone, but that's not really our goal. Our goal is simply to praise it and shine a spotlight on it because it is worthy, and it's simple as that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to promise any amazing insights or anything that you've never heard before because there is just a lot of material that's already been written about Mouse in a, you know, again, scholarly manner. As it's well been as, around for a long time. Yeah, lots of people have talked about it. Yeah. You know, it's universally acclaimed and recognized as yeah. one of the most important and best comics ever made. So, with, with that we- said, oh. you know, uh, we're just going to do our best to praise it. Yeah. It deserves and, it. And I, th- and I think it's also fair for me to mention, like, I haven't read any of these critical um, essays or analyses. So I'm sure the things that I will bring up, as well as you two will, that may have been addressed or covered by somebody else. So if you heard any of these things before, that, that's fine. Um, I'm just, for me, I, I went in a little more detail and kind of, like, observed more about this book in my second read. So just things I just... You know, notice maybe this time it's been quite a while since I last read it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I just want to add that you know I'd like to think that our podcast, you know, reaches if it reaches one person and gets them to read it. Like I've I consider that mission accomplished on my part. You know, yeah, absolutely, it's, it's something worth reading, and it's you know even though it's a well-regarded and well-known book, um, you know. Just because something is well-known and well-regarded doesn't mean that everyone is aware of it. So, you know, uh, occasionally there's that one person who's just doesn't listen to the academics or maybe mm-hmm. doesn't have any uh, knowledge of comics whatsoever. Yeah, they'll listen true. to you. Yeah, if they happen to be listening to us, you know, if they for whatever reason, and they just happen to uh, uh, just glean enough information that and, and interest in it so that they go check it out. Yeah, I'm good with that, man. 
Yeah, or even if it just motivates somebody who's already read it to reread it, I, I, I'll take that too, man. Cool, cool, cool. I agree. I agree. Okay, so just a brief little bit of history and context about Mouse. So Mouse is by Art Spiegelman. He wrote, drew it, lettered it, everything. He did it all. It's a one-man show. Uh, the book is really uh, about Art Spiegelman and his father, uh, particularly his father's uh, survival story uh, through the Holocaust. But you also get a good amount of information about their relationship uh, as well when Art was uh, a grown man. So he was born, Art Spiegelman was born in 1948. And he became a part of the underground comics movement by the late 60s and 70s. But in the 80s, he really solidified himself as a cornerstone of English language comics, uh, particularly the alternative comics that were rising to the forefront in that time period. <clears throat> in a recent interview with Abraham Reisman, published over in Vulture, this was published, I believe, February 14th. Uh, so just shortly after the news of the book banning in Tennessee came out. But Spiegelman, uh, in that interview, I read that Spiegelman, who has had amblyopia since childhood, which is a lazy eye, uh, you know, eye condition, he mentioned that his abilities as a cartoonist, he attributed his abilities as a cartoonist to his imperfect vision and his need for glasses because he was, quote, terrible at baseball. So I thought that was a funny little uh, observation that he made of himself just to point out that he spent a lot of time at the drawing board because he wasn't too interested in sports as a, as a kid. Now, one thing about Mouse that not a whole lot of people know, and this is something I learned when I was just doing a little bit of research, cursory research into... The book's background but he actually did a three-page comic strip titled mouse in an underground comic uh, in the 70s and it was quite different from what we recognize as mouse today but it did contain the imagery of an oppressed minority as mice and their oppressors as cats and it was also done as a story where a father was talking to his son uh, in this case uh the son was like a young a young kid, a young mouse, uh, you know, kind of like a bedtime story. And his name, that mouse's name, the little kid's name was Mickey, amusingly enough. <laughs> I've never actually read the entire strip. I've only come across the first page, but I'm sure if you search for it online, you can probably find a scan or something. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend, I definitely don't recommend pirating stuff, but I, I'm not really sure where else you can obtain that strip today. So. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to the listener. Now, starting in the 80s, Art Spiegelman and his wife, Francois Mouly, started and edited an alternative co comics publication called Raw. It was in Raw that the individual chapters of Mouse were originally published from 1980 to 1991. Now, Francois Mouly herself would go on to have a massive in influence in English language comics as a publisher and editor of alternative and avant-garde works, as well as comics that are that were aimed at children and younger readers. 
Since 1993, she has also been the art editor of the New Yorker magazine. So she appears in Mouse uh, book two during the present day scenes. So I thought it would would be a little bit relevant to you know point out what she's done for comics as well because she's clearly had a big impact, just not the kind of impact that a lot of people probably recognize because she's done so many things um, behind the scenes as a publisher and an editor and a tastemaker. Mm. The first, but, oh yeah, did you want to say something? I was just gonna say that's pretty cool. I didn't know that about her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you look up her uh, Wikipedia entry. She, there's a lot of great information about her accomplishments there. Sweet, sweet. Now, the first several chapters of Mouse were collected into book one and published in 1986 as a collected edition by Pantheon Books. And the second volume was published in 1991, also by Pantheon. And today, I believe you can still find the two individual volumes, but you can also get a one-volume edition Mouse was highly acclaimed and decorated by critics, winning notable awards, including the Eisner, the Harvey, the Angoulême International Comics Festival Awards, and various other uh, comics awards. But perhaps most notably, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1992 under the category Special Awards and Citations, Letters. I don't know exactly what that category indicates, but to date... Mouse remains the only comic ever to win a Pulitzer Prize. So that's quite an accomplishment there. Pretty notable if you're the type who puts a lot of weight into awards of those sorts. Now, earlier this year, and this is what uh, we alluded to uh, at the start of the podcast, but earlier this year in late January of 2022, the McMinn County School Board in Tennessee removed Mouse from their eighth grade curriculum after some parents objected to the nudity and profanity contained within the book. The school board voted to unanimously ban the book. This generated a great deal of controversy and publicity for Mouse itself, which happened to rocket back up into the bestsellers list. Like I, I read that uh, on Amazon it wasn't even in the top 1,000, and then after that happened, it was like in the top five. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much it in terms of context. Did you guys have anything um, that you wanted to to say? I mean, I guess since you since we're talking about the the banning thing, situation, mm-hmm. I, I did want to make a remark that um, maybe I missed the profanity, but the only profanity that is in this book are like the the racial slurs against Jews that were made, like that are chronicled um through the story. Um I I know, did you catch any other profanity in there that I missed? Like any like actually recognized profanity in the English language? I think there was an S word, a couple oh, okay. of dams. Okay. Yeah, well, definitely a, considered a, a bad word. Yeah, I mean at the end of uh book one on the last page, that scene where uh Art loses his temper at his at his father. Like that that scene has a couple of cuss words. I think oh. if I had to be perfectly honest in terms of my opinion on on the whole thing, uh, I I don't think that the ban the the ban or the the basis of the ban was made in good faith. 
in the sense that uh, although their argument is that we're trying to protect the kids from nudity or bad words uh, and, and that reason in and of itself should be enough to get this book removed. Um, I, I don't think that those were the real reasons. I, I, I don't know who these people are, but I do have a feeling that uh, they had an ulterior motive for removing these books uh, because at the core of the books, there's... At the core of the book, uh, it's it's something that, you know, teaches people empathy and, you know, it's something that's trying to educate people about what happens when hate and bigotry take hold and really get people and governments to do awful things to minorities and um and and that could be any kind of minority like i'm not even saying specifically an ethnic minority but just you know someone that doesn't agree with the government who is in the minority you know like when when that happens um yeah it's it's not what a, a just government should do and i just have a feeling that the people that are banning the books don't want that to be something that their kids are exposed to right mm-hmm. so i guess that was the point i was making is that they were hanging the reasoning on a very like very flimsy um hook which is it's very flimsy like under any like reasonable scrutiny like like the, there's only limited nudity and it's presented as a showcase one these are also anthropomorphized human beings as as, as animals so it's like if anything you can call it animal nudity which last i checked since kids have to take biology it's not you don't ban science for that reason because animals are nude by default but in the context it's showing the nudity that was forced upon them as 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 prisoners it's just it's just it's communicating the utter depravity of what human beings can do to other human beings yeah um, it was a tactic used to dehumanize the exactly the jews yeah and just like it's like it's not nudity designed for pornographic or erotic purposes like it's like the exact opposite it's if anything, it's 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 cringy in a different way of like making you realize there are human beings like your your neighbor could have been somebody who who could do this to somebody, you know? Yeah. That the reality of what of what we're capable of even to ourselves. Um, yeah. So that was my whole point, is just their their reasoning is just such a such a weird and flimsy reasoning. And I'm curious, in that district, do they also ban Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn for using the N-word? That's a good question. Um, Very like I'd have question. to take a look look at the list of books that were banned, but I mean, when when this was all over the news a couple of weeks ago, um, and by the way, that feels like forever ago with everything that's happened. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when this was all over the news a couple of weeks ago, they I remember seeing some of the books that were uh, highlighted in terms of what was removed, and you know there were there were some that were a little more adult, but there were also some that just on this face of it seemed pretty innocuous. They were like kids books, you know? Um, yeah. I want to say Toni Morrison had one of her books removed. I think her name was Toni Morrison, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, what's it called? What's, what's, what's that one book by, was it called black boy by Richard Wright? Yeah. I believe yeah. that was, that is, 
you know, that's a book that it's kind of telling if those are the books that they want to ban. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a book that depicts some pretty unsavory things, but you know, the, the subject matter is unsavory by nature, you know, and to single out and cherry pick specific elements of the book to make it seem as though the entire point of the book is to to celebrate gratuitous nudity or violence or whatever like it again it's a pretty bad faith argument you know it's it's not done i'm i'm pretty confident that they didn't do it because they genuinely felt that they were protecting kids from nudity or or violence if anything i'm sure they believed that they were protecting kids from uh you know don't hold back empathy. now to be honest <laughs> they were trying to protect their kids from you know exposure to uh, truth. uh black stories to 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 black voices to yeah the truth to any, to, to any to any event where uh, who however people want to identify as white did terrible things to people who they consider not white like it, it's just strange like how to like because like the violence in this book is violence that's recorded through history. It's the same thing as anything you watch in the news these days. It's the same thing as um, anything that would be considered just factual historical knowledge. All this is is really a biography, and at moments also an autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, it just it, it it pulls me because it's not trying to glorify anything. It's it's simply communicating true events and it's depicting the horrificness of those events. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like if, in, yeah. if anything, it would, it would offer them some self-reflection, some like education of like the things that people have gone through. Like, like I don't know. It's almost it's it, you know it, to me like I'll go on them and say like I think they're banning it. One I think for some for political reasons. Another just because if you pretend something doesn't exist, then you can pretend like it doesn't exist. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, and, and truth be told, there's there's an element of this where. You know, we mentioned earlier that they're protecting their kids, and in, in their eyes, I'm sure that what they're protecting their kids from is from becoming more empathetic people who aren't bastards. You know, right? <laughs> Essentially, I mean, it's it's a means of uh, uh, sanitizing literature and history so that their kids aren't in a position to reevaluate history and society and maybe make changes based on those right. lessons. Yeah, and I think maybe even like the problem of that self-reflection of of their sense of identity and like how they interact with all around them, you know? Absolutely. It's it's a form of preservation of whatever their status quo is, you know? Right. Which is actually interesting because that's also something that's addressed in Mao's, but from a different perspective from a different angle too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's it's weird. It, well, it's not weird. It's it's apt that the kind of people that should read this book are the kind of people that are trying to ban it right now. It's it's pretty <laughs> right. telling. It's pretty telling. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I've it's, got a few things to say about that. Yeah. So so first first of all, it is definitely silly to uh like the the reasoning that they gave. I mean, when you when you think about it, it's like this book is about the Holocaust and they're worried that it has the word shit, you know, and it's like, yeah. it, it, it doesn't make sense. That, that doesn't make sense. The whole thing about nudity, 
there's that one page, one panel on page 100. And I'm, I'm, I have the paperback editions, so I'm going to be referring to, to that. But page 100 of the first volume, when we see that excerpt from Art Spiegelman's comic that he made uh, in the 70s, oh, Prisoner, Prisoner on, on the Help Planet. Planet. Yeah, the one about his mom's death. There's a, a panel there that he draws where, the scene, where, the moment where his father walks home and finds Art's mother... Uh, you know, she committed suicide. And so she's in in the bathtub with her with her uh, wrists slashed. But it's kind of like this strange perspective, top down shot uh, where you can see her body and you you can see like the the hint of her breast and and nipple. But there's nothing titillating about it. I mean, it's more horrifying and sad than than anything else. So it, it again, it's another situation where it. It feels weird to be outraged that there's nudity in the book uh, when, like, that's kind of kind of all it is, you know. Like, it it's to express the the horror and shock of walking home and finding your wife naked in the bathtub with her wrist slashed. Yeah, yeah. And then the third thing I wanted to say is something. Again, this is something I got from that Vulture article, uh, the interview that he did with Abraham Riesman. But as pointed out in that article, a McMinn parent named Mike Cochran complained about the cussing during a scene between Art and Vladik. So that must have been the scene I was mentioning earlier where he, uh, Art gets really upset at his dad because his dad destroyed his mother's diaries. You know, all, all of the inform just precious information that contained her thoughts on, on life and surviving the Holocaust and everything. And she wanted Art to, ha to have access to these diaries, but Vladik destroyed them in a moment of grief. And so obviously Art's anger is, is understandable. Mm -hmm. But this is what that McMinn parent said. And I'll quote this from the article. Cochran said, a lot of the cussing had to do with the son cussing out the father, so I don't know how that teaches our kids any kind of ethical stuff. It's just the opposite. Instead of treating his father with respect, he treated his father like he, meaning Art, was the victim. End quote. But that's, that's, a... Such, a, that's such a lazy thought because like, the relationship <laughs> between parents and children is so complicated. Like, like, like who doesn't such have... A... Yeah. Who doesn't Go have disagreements with their parents and get emotional about it? Like that's they're they're your parents. Like I would argue that your family, your fellow family, are the people you're most likely to get emotional with and like say things you don't mean. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if anything, sorry, I was gonna say if anything, like I think the perspective of art being a victim is a fair perspective. I mean, they're they're both victims, you know, in their mm -hmm. own different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a real yeah. moment of frustration. Like people, it's like Drew said, like it's understandable and. That's how real people behave, you know, and I don't think looking at that and seeing, you know, someone treating someone with disrespect in a situation where their emotions get the best of them at that, like, I don't think that's unreasonable, you know? Yeah. Plus, I don't think Art Spiegelman was putting this panel in here to praise himself, like, look how I talked to my dad. I'm so, so I'm doing the right thing. It's yeah. a reflection of his of his honest, genuine interaction and with his it's father. It's not the like, celebration of him being a dick to his dad. It's not like, yeah. look mm -hmm. how cool I was for, like, telling my dad, you know, what a piece <laughs> of crap he was or, or something. 
because yeah. like I was mentioned earlier in the introduction, this book also serves as um, an, you could say, a commentary on Art Spiegelman's reflection of his relationship with his father and trying to process how he relates to his father. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I mean, that just goes to what I was saying or what I was about to say, which was like, it's just such a, like, I, I don't know who this guy is, you know? So there's there's a chance that he meant it in all sincerity, like he meant what he said, but there's also part of me that feels like it's such a, such a thing to cherry pick and to spin a certain way, you know? Yeah. There's that, he, he doesn't, it's, it's like he just ignored the context of everything. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure that guy understood what it meant, what it means to be angry at someone in, in the heat of the moment. But instead of looking at it from that, he chose to frame it in a way where he could come out of this as the hero by saying, I don't want my kids di- uh, learning lessons to disrespect their elders, which is yeah. how weak is that, man? I mean, and- also, if that was his lesson, he could have reflected more saying, OK, maybe this is a good book for kids to learn how or for also for parents to learn how to interact with their kids to not scar them where that interaction happens disrespectfully, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And on like top the, of that, the, even in that scene, it's not like Art is a nine-year-old boy. He's in his 30s talking to his father. You know, that's two men talking to each other, even though right. Lodic is yeah. still his dad. Yeah. And, yeah. and like you said, just taking things out of context, there's a very simple context in that one panel, which is... It's manipulative, when, man. It's super well, manipulative. <laughs> yeah. Because Vladik doesn't say he got rid of the books. He simply burned the diaries. That's what he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing because when when, Vla- when Artie calls his father a murderer, there's a parallel because during World War II, right, the Nazis burned all books they felt were um, not for their agenda. They were like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so like it was just a very interesting contrast because here you have a his father who's Jewish, who and like in, in the Jewish faith, like burning books of, of, of importance are you just don't do that. It's it's a it's it's not done. Granted, her, her diaries, while not um, divine books of that nature, they're still very personal, very important books, you know, that keep her memory alive. And, and, and through yeah. the story, we, we see that he still remembers her more fondly than his own current wife, Mala. Mm-hmm. But in this simple context, like the context is he calls his father a murderer as a reflection of the way we call Nazis murderers in their actions and how they not just try to kill the Jews, but also try to destroy their culture, their identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't go very deep, and it's just right there. Like so, it's like the guy like completely like just like shut off like his whole entire brain and just focused on just simply, uh, yeah, uh, a son's yelling at his father. Like you mentioned, not just a son, but at this point, an adult age son who's having a conversation with another fellow adult and expressing his frustration. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I I also wanted to add another little bit of context um, that I feel is worth mentioning. So. Although this book was banned by an unauthorized body, uh, I do remember watching a uh, an interview about it where someone and and granted this is anecdotal, so you know take take from it what you will, but essentially they were saying that even even outside of the context of what the school board would allow or not allow to be in their library. Um, there were people 
now that are going out of their way to harass librarians and to harass people that might even defend this book. So the people Mm -hmm. that would actually advocate for this book or uh, that would include it in their library, the people that are uh, bringing this to to the attention of kids uh, or or youth, uh, they're actively being harassed. Uh, in, in worst case scenarios, they're receiving threats. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at the end of the day, these people have to live in those communities. So there's there's the there's the level of authority that comes from uh, local governments that are uh, banning this book, but there's also this uh, unspoken additional layer societal pressure. Yeah, societal pressure that's affecting uh the will to to put these books so really all all the all the cards are stacked against a lot of these books you know it's yeah it's pretty awful so kind of still the case where a body with power makes a decision and there are those who simply like just are hateful taking that as a sign that it's okay for them to behave like animals uh, I'm Pretty sure much. that they're zealots of sorts that, yeah, exactly, <laughs> that believe that, um, you know, they're defending, they're they're doing this for the children, so <laughs> it justifies their behavior, right? Right. And I bet these same people have pornographic images of children on their computers, too. <laughs> uh. it, it reminds me of what we talked about when we were discussing March. A couple of episodes ago where nate powell had made that little cartoon strip discussing how when they were make when they were publishing march they had really had to think about how they were going to go about presenting the story of the civil rights movement because of that just even that one anecdote in his comic strip where he showed i forget where it took place but there was a local librarian who worked at a i think it was either just a librarian or a school librarian but she was the one who saw March and was like, I can't buy this and stock it at my library because if I do, people are going to complain and I'm going to get fired. You yeah, know? I remember yeah. listening to that part, yeah. Yeah, so there's just... That's so sad. Yeah, that, that's pretty sad, man. Yeah, yeah. And the politicians who could make those kind of changes that protect these people, like, just turn the blind eye because, like, well, one, they go, first, they, they don't want to get involved. They're just like, just, you know, keep the peace. Like... It's like they just take it's just I don't know, it's just it's such a sad state of affairs that we still live in a day and age where Plus these are the people that vote for them, dude. So yeah, you know, sure. it's it's one of those things where it's like, Well, why should I rock the boat when I can just, you know, yeah. kind of play play blind to whatever's going on and get them to continue to vote me in. Yeah, exactly. Why have that's people, this right? guy's just, livelihood? Just, just just turn the blind eye and let things like the Holocaust happen again, right? It's just yeah. it's easier to do not it's easier to do nothing, right? Yeah. Well, you know, politicians aren't necessarily known for being brave or principled. <laughs> no, I know. I mean like like none of the stuff is surprising. You punching down, Albert, you punching down. It's easy to make fun of these guys, ain't it? Look, if any of them would get on a stepladder, I'd gladly punch up into their nuts. <laughs> I would do an all you Sharukin right up there. <laughs> Yeah, like, like, I mean, when these things happen, like, and you hear these stories about various bannings that like, crop up every now and then, like, 
none of the stuff surprised me, but it just, I think it just always saddens me more and more because as we move forward in this day and age, it feels like, have we not learned anything from, from history? And then of course yeah. I'm like, of course not, because they ban any book that reflects that history. And the other mm-hmm. thing about this entire thing is it's so brazen too, right? Like it's not like one book. It's, it's like an entire list of books that they're removing, you know? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I There are obviously things that you don't want around your kids or things that shouldn't be in a kid's library. I get that, right? But mm-hmm. um, it's so to, – to make such a concerted effort to say, well, here are our, here is our list of undesirable books. And then when you look at that list and to go, there's uh, something in common amongst all these books that I'm noticing. <laughs> and for them to go, what – I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe if that's what you see, that's you. You know, maybe you're, you're the, the real racist. racist. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'll let you know when I'm being racist. You'll know when I'm being racist. <laughs> yeah, like I, I think I asked Drew about this when we were going for one of our walks around the neighborhood or last week, which is so. But for some clarification, is this book banned only in middle school libraries, or is it banned through all the the county school libraries, even high school libraries? I'm not sure exactly. I believe that it was removed from the eighth grade curriculum specifically okay. because it was, I think, I believe it was uh, parents of an eighth grade class who were the ones who objected. So they specifically uh, removed the county board specifically removed it from that curriculum. But okay. if it's on a list of banned books, I would imagine it's just banned from the whole uh, county, so I'll, I, w- I would guess it's all the schools, but I I can't say with 100% certainty. I don't know all the facts. Yeah, I tried looking it up, but there wasn't enough information to to explain exactly in what capacity it was banned. Also, I couldn't find a full list of books that were banned. I guess you found it somewhere. I couldn't find it, but it also raises the question of like things like I know like this is clearly not an eighth grade book. It's oftentimes taught in high school. I know this was the first time I read it. it was you know Catcher in the Rye. You know mm-hmm. th- that book has kind of a a sex scene you know halfway through the book that's you know involves holden caulfield and a prostitute like i would be i would consider that under their ethical concerns that would fall under that that category right yeah but i i would classic but i wouldn't be surprised if that book was not banned because again it's classic you know yeah (laughs) i'm just again it's just it's, it's just i'm not surprised but it still leaves me scratching my head as to like the inconsistency in whatever criteria they're trying to use to ban these books yeah i'm I'm just not a fan of banning books as a principle sure it makes sense not to teach certain books if you don't think that the age group you're teaching if it's not appropriate for that age group you know like i don't know you wouldn't teach uh catcher in the rye to preschooler it wouldn't make sense right i mean i'd like to try i think it'd be funny (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> albert you're probably alone in that one <laughs> listen billy this man is clearly a- at odds with society what aren't you getting <laughs> man i, I can't mean, so wait until you have kids is, man they're simply banning it from the eighth grade curriculum but they're like they they would institute it in like a high school curriculum i mean it's whatever like if they feel like kids need to be older to to process that i guess maybe that's See, I would I would buy that argument a bit more. Like they'd rather have students in high school who are maybe more mentally ready to process, to read it. Um, 
And I'll offer like a reason why I think that would have been a more valid argument is because um, there was a story um, some years ago, like when Schindler's List's movie was coming came out, um, and there was a a school I think in the Bay Area that took a class to see it, um, and this is a class um, in I guess in an, I guess in a neighborhood where the students were mostly ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. And the kids there, I think, were like, I think, middle school age kids. And they were laughing to the things that are happening in the movie. Wow. Which, which was kind of appalling and shocking. But at the same time, like, I think about kids, you know, these days in the middle school age range. And I'm like, I'm also not surprised when, when people see these mo- kinds of movies and laugh at things that happen. Because I think a lot of people are somewhat immature and disassociated from reality. They can't process the gravitas of what's happening. So, like, I could understand, like, maybe Mao's, if you said, hey, let's teach Mao's as a ninth or tenth grade work of fiction, I'd be like, fine, that's a bit more reasonable. I could see that argument being played out. But that's not the, the argument fiction, they made at all. It's, it's, not even, it's not even fiction, though. No, I understand. But if you want to teach it as as a work of literature, right? Like, Shunless yeah. is also a, a, a biographical work. Like, I would feel like that's more of a good faith argument of, like, hey, let's let's wait until they're matured enough to process this information. Um, and teach it like, at like ninth or tenth grade, but that's nothing. I feel like to. that would be a decision that teachers should make. So it it doesn't make sense why why the school board would be the ones that determine whether the students are mature enough to handle the material because they're not the ones who spend daily time with the students. Well, that's true. But have you known any school district where the where the directors ever listen to anything that teachers have to say? No. <laughs> all, all I'm all I was offering is a potential argument that they could have made, but they went with the flimsier, dumbest argument they ever could. Yeah. 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 But I also think that again, like the point wasn't the argument. So at the end of the day, like you might even say that by choosing the flimsiest argument, they're just thumbing their nose at, you know, at logic, right? Yeah. Because the point isn't that they really want to protect their kids from nudity or swears or, you know, disrespect or whatever. I mean, the point is they just don't want their kids to, you know, learn about How not these awful things that about not to be a Nazi, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not like, to be essentially, yeah, uh, that's that's kind of what it boils down to. So, I, I don't, so here's here's uh, here's another funny point I want to ask is like, of of all of all the complaints they had about um, unsavory things happening in the book, did anybody amongst the parents or the board talk about um, the racist comment the Vladik had to make about the the black person that Francois wanted to pick up on the way back to? Um, I do not think that that was a concern that they raised <laughs> at all <laughs> that's just that's exactly my point it's just like yeah. like <laughs> that's okay that was okay but yeah but but the uh the yelling between two adults one being the father of the other person that that's not okay like well that's objectionable yeah so we're kind of getting into the 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 nitty-gritty of the books a little so i i guess we should try to do you want to I, you I, want to I talk was about curious. the book? Well, before we go into that, I do have one one thing that's I'm curious about, which is yeah. I, I'm kind of I want to know what your guys's 
exposure to this book was uh, prior to, well, just what your exposure to this book, the first time you saw it or it came to your attention? Like, so what, what thoughts you had? The first time I heard about Mouse was definitely when I was a kid in the in the 90s. I didn't read it, but because I was into comics, it was it was just something that I would hear about, you know, or maybe read about. Maybe I saw a mention about it in Wizard Magazine or something, or maybe I saw it at a bookstore. But I, I didn't actually, I don't think I actually read the whole thing at that time just you know i guess as a kid i was just more interested in in like superhero comics and and uh things of that nature you know just adventure stories so something that looked really serious uh and was in black and white didn't necessarily have the same pull for me at that age uh-huh. so i didn't actually read mouse until i was in college and i was a freshman at the time we actually read it for one of our classes as a I was an English lit major so it was part of the assigned reading and that's when I first bought my copies of it and you know read it for for that class nice well okay what about you Shanus yeah so my first exposure to Mao's was actually I think in my I want to say my second or third year as an undergraduate student at UC Davis so this was already a little bit after I had reconnected with Drew. Even though we lived in the same dorm for half of the first year, we didn't really hang out again much until I think we bumped into each other at some point. And I started going um, and reading comic books again because I've been out of the reading comic books for a long time. So we were like those weekly Wednesday Warriors that Drew mentions on your podcast every now and then. Yeah. And I believe I got my copy of the book from Borders Books, which was still open at UC Davis uh, while I was there. Um, so that was my first read through. And at that time I wasn't giving it a deeply critical eye. It was just more reading the, the biography slash autobiography of Art Spiegelman and his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being that I'm Jewish, like I just like, this is something that would resonate with me. Like, you know, reading these personalized stories about like what people had gone through in the Holocaust. So for me, that was just, it was me just reading a story about that experience. Yeah. What about you, Albert? Um, so I think like you, this was something that, well, actually I want to add, I wanted to ask Shana something real quick. So just to clarify, so this wasn't some, this wasn't a book that you were aware of prior to college then? Oh, right. Uh, you know, I think I like, like Drew, I may have heard of the book Mouse here and there when I drop into a comic shop now and again. Uh Uh-huh. But I didn't. I think when I first when I first heard the title, again, like Drew as as when I was a younger kid, if I was reading comic books, it was usually superhero stuff. So when I heard the title yeah. Mouse, it sounded I I recognized it sounded like very Germanic. So I was like, oh, like maybe it's just one of like like weird like books about something strange. So I didn't give it much thought beyond that. So I really didn't look into it at that time, you know. Okay. Uh, so okay. I I had heard about it in the periphery, but I just I didn't give it much thought because I just didn't I just wasn't intrigued to look into it i see i see okay all right good to know so i think like drew and like yourself this was a book that i was peripherally aware of as a kid i think the first 
time that it really that I really noticed it though was when I was a kid. Did did you guys ever get those Scholastic Book Fair flyers? The ones where you could order books and they would you know deliver it to you or deliver it to the school. Yeah, oh, those school things. Yeah, I had I got a lot of Scholastic yeah. book orders. This was yeah. in the book orders. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I remember when I was a kid, it was in the book orders, and I remember like looking at it and looking at the images. Because it was like a small like thumbnail, so because you know each book, so the Scholastic book order was usually like two, maybe a few pages uh, of of books in a grid formation. So you would see a bunch of different books, and then they would have they'd be part of a grid, and then you take the number, and then you put it in the order form, and then you return it you to the teacher with some money, and then they order it for you, right? Mm-hmm. All the so, time, yeah. Yeah, so I remember yeah. seeing a uh, mouse in in the book order in one of these book order forms, and I remember seeing the pictures. And you know, the grid's usually really small because they're just trying to cram everything in there, so you don't really see a lot. But you know, I remember looking at it and reading the description, and the thing that really jumped out at me was some of the art in in the in the in this tiny tiny grid and it wasn't a lot like i said like their space was really limited but i do remember seeing the images and i liked picture books and i liked comics but there was something about mouse looking at it that if i had to be honest i found it kind of scary you know just yeah and when you look at the pictures in the books uh especially certain scenes there's something about the fact that the book is drawn in black and white and that the book has this scratchy style. And especially when you're looking at scenes with the uh, with just the awful stuff happening to the, the mice, the Jew, the Jews, like. As a kid, that image really stuck with me. There was something about that that just really like unnerved me. So even though like I knew what comics were and I was into comics, I knew that this was something that was different, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until much later that I read it like as an adult. But there, there, that image always, always stuck with me. So know? how come you didn't order it from the book orders? Um, like I said, even as a kid, I knew that this was something that was above my head, something that. I wasn't really going to get and it was also something that like I said uh, I found kind of frightening so it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't the thing that I gravitated towards you know mm-hmm. but it definitely left an impression on me yeah but then you know instead I would probably buy like Garfield or something <laughs> I was going to say like when you mentioned this classic book orders like that brought me back to memories of like my uh, elementary school middle school days and every time I'd get those like classic book orders, I'd always ask my parents like, "Hey, can you buy me these books?" My parents like almost always be like, "No," like, you know. <laughs> I mean, they do it sometimes, but like, they, they didn't want to spend money on like on like books they weren't sure about. Yeah. And like, yeah. and to be fair, like every time I got those classic book orders, I'd always my eyes would always go right away to like, "What's the most recent Arl Stein Goosebumps book that has come out?" Or books. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, we, we grew up in that era. <laughs> yeah. And 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 the Wayside stories by uh, Sideways stories by Wayside School that was also oh fun yeah stuff. those were fun nice. nice Indian in the cupboard 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where I actually got my first few books of that series too. So you know, it's very possible I might have seen Mao's on on those things and just didn't realize it and just like, but like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a similar experience in that my parents didn't want to spend money on me to buy books either, uh, but I would try my best to negotiate with them. So a lot of the times, what I would do is. Just as a kid, I just wanted to buy something, you know. So I would pick like the cheapest thing in the in the in the book, the catalog, in the, in the catalog. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up buying like some, uh, yeah, like some some magazine that had Garfield on the cover. <laughs> it, like you know, it was basically just like a coloring book or something. But I was just glad to have it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know it's a bit of an aside, but like I have the same experience. But like it's funny because like, when I got into high school. My parents were more were more willing to buy me books I asked for, but I don't know maybe because they thought I was older, so I was actually able to justify like I can read books and process what I'm reading. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, clearly, like them not buying you books in uh, elementary school and middle school like didn't stop your your love of books, right? So no, I yeah, I love stories. I love I love fiction and non-fiction i just it's just all for me just all knowledge information things i can process and like uh build up my larger world view yeah mm-hmm. yeah wait so albert you said you were an adult when you read it so were you in college or was it after college oh man what made you finally decide to read it um i i don't think i was in college uh I think I'm trying to think back it. So even, even after all those years, after seeing it in the book order, it, like I said, it left an impression on me to the point where I still remembered it even then. But I think I just didn't really have access to it for the longest time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I didn't really take any classes where it was offered as, as, uh, as part of the, uh, what's it called? curriculum the curriculum yeah right i do remember a few years later uh seeing it at the library Mm -hmm. and still having those feelings about it and and i do think i was at a point in my life where i was looking for something more sophisticated out of out of comics yeah so so even though you know i was reading my my standard amount of spider-man or batman or whatever um dan jurgens thor yeah dan jurgens <laughs> thor I, like when i did see it at the library and you know i had this this budding sense of oh man i want to i want to branch out i want to try to read something different you know i want to i want to expand my horizons a little bit and you know remembering mouse in that moment seeing mouse at the library and remembering like my the thoughts i had on it when i was a little kid and thinking to myself you know what even though like i still remember this book i never actually read it i was just yeah i was just in a place where i was like you know what i'm gonna give this a shot now i might be old enough to like get it now you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i I gave it a shot and i definitely was not just uh disappointed yeah I don't remember what class it was that 
I had to read it for, but I definitely do remember number one, that was the first time I'd ever had a class where we read a comic for the required reading. So that nice, alone just nice. made it stand out. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, yeah. And then when I finally did read it, I was pretty much blown away, you know? Like this was right in that period when I was getting back into comics, freshman year of college. It's an excellent book, wonderful book. Yeah. You know, like I've, I've mentioned on our podcast a few times just how, you know, kind of fell away from superhero comics in the late 90s because of Onslaught and the Clone Saga and all that junk. And I would occasionally just read stuff at the store, but I would I kind of stopped buying stuff. And I would go to the comic shop to look at manga and, and other kinds of comics. So the thing that... uh in freshman year it sounds so dumb but the thing that got me going back into comic book stores on a regular basis was when dreamwave got the license to do those transformers comics <laughs> <laughs> nice so, so nice. like in that at that point i was like full on back into comics just reading everything as voraciously as i could and trying to expose myself to, to indie comics and underground comics alternative comics and whatever so like to see that mouse was part of something i had to read for class it was it was a it was great, man. Like killing two birds with one stone, getting my education and yeah. uh, doing what I wanted to do, which was read more comics. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I remember. If only uh, they would teach more comics in in uh, in literature classes in college. I think I would have loved it. Probably do more now compared to when we were in I school. I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. I remember when I would go and buy my textbooks at Davis for my classes, and I'd be walking around looking at the, the textbook shelves. There were a lot more graphic novels um, on the English class sections than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely saw, always, I could see Watchmen or Be From Vendetta on them or something, a mouse. Um, yeah. Also, uh, Chinese born, uh, American born Chinese. Yeah. I, oh, you actually saw that, huh? Impressive. Yeah, I did, yeah. I do wish I had taken a class where we could have read Watchmen for uh, as part of the class. That would have been awesome. Yeah. yeah Wait, Drew, but... didn't you write an essay about that or comparing Watchmen and Be From Data for like your final papers for one of your classes? Uh, did I? I don't really remember if I did that. That sounds like something I might have done for fun. I don't know if I did that for class. Uh, I remember you mentioning that was part of your like final paper or something. I remember there was a class I took where our TA, he was a, a younger dude and he was cool, man. And he would he ended up uh, making some of his own comics and he ended up uh, oh, teaching at, cool. at, a, at an art school, uh, teaching comics at an art school. But um, at the time, he was like a grad student, I think. I think he was a grad student at, at Davis and he, he was like the TA for my section. And in those sessions, we would... Uh, he would he would literally bring a crate full of his personal comic book collection and we could just you know pick what we wanted to read and and that and, sounds uh, so you fun, know dude. write write uh, essays about those comics so that that was definitely one of the most memorable college experiences i had in in school that sounds so um, fun dude yeah i remember <laughs> i remember you mentioned it to you i remember I, I think i bought one of his books wasn't he like yeah, he showcased at some point an ape, some like or like thirteen years ago or so, right? Yeah, I think it was more than thirteen, but yeah, his name's uh Matt Salady. Yeah, that's right, Matt Salady. I always think of Matt Kent, but Matt Salady is right. Yeah, 
Yeah, I still have his comics, man. <laughs> what, nice. what, what, did he, what did he write? Was it the Homeless Channel or something? Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. The Homeless Channel. He wrote and drew that. Anyway, we're getting off the track right now, so let's, yeah. let's go back to Mouse, and uh, we can do a, a discussion of the of the book. I'll provide a, a brief synopsis. I, I think uh, we've probably described it in uh, enough broad detail, uh, but here's, here's a, a little one-paragraph synopsis, just uh, in case anyone out there listening somehow hasn't, uh, isn't familiar with Mouse or hasn't read it. So, Mouse is the story of Art Spiegelman's father, Vladek. It is about Vladek's experience in Poland and surviving the Holocaust. It is also about Art Spiegelman's personal relationship with his father. Most of the book is focused on Vladek's narrative, but interspersed meaningfully throughout are scenes with an adult Art interviewing his father about his experiences. These scenes add additional layers of emotional complexity to Vladek as we get to see him as an older man who survived the Holocaust. And we also get to learn more about Art and his complicated relationship with his father. Is there anything you guys want to add on to that brief synopsis? No, I think it's excellent. You uh, you summed it up perfectly. Cool, cool. Obviously, all three of us here really appreciate and like and champion this comic. What are your overall general thoughts? If you want to share anything specific or how, I don't know, whether it's a scene or a sequence that impacted you that, or that you found particularly memorable or even just something that, uh, you know, something that hit you hard. I, I guess I'll comment about, I guess, a general, like, I guess, observation of this work, which is art speaking doesn't shy away from and I'm using the word kind of loosely, and I'll try to qualify what I mean. He doesn't try from from embarrassing himself or his father, and I don't mean this in the harsh way. I mean to more say reflect the the truth of who they are as people, and mm-hmm. both their experiences and their relationship. Which, you know, when when people typically write autobiographies or any kind of biography, I'm not saying that everybody does this, but like I think more often than not, they avoid any of the. Like, overly negative things unless they can like spin it as a humorous like yarn like you know like oh when i was young i did something stupid but you know i learned from this so it's nothing that bad mm-hmm. but you actually look at art's relationship with his father and it, it it isn't healthy right it is it isn't a good one um but you still can tell then there that there's genuine love and concern between the two um and and it's it's it's, it's an interesting trait because like Coming from a Jewish background, like you, when you read the 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 five books of Moses and the book of prophets and books of Kings, the Jewish history is 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 oftentimes not a positive one in terms of the way they in terms of their relationship with with God. In fact, in fact, oftentimes they they do they do sinful things and so forth. But there's there's always this this recurring theme of of repentance and redemption and and like truly mercy and love, and I think that's what's carried through this book is that I think and like for me it's this I think it's really just R. Spiegelman trying to process his relationship with his father, like trying to adjust and find out in the spectrum like how he loves his father, how he likes his father, or dislikes his father, but ultimately it's also a story about acceptance and 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 dealing with grief and and trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have yeah, I think to it's agree. important that you mentioned that he writes with a a lot of 
brutal frankfulness you know like it's it's very honest in a way that is sometimes painful and what you said about how um about that element of honesty it 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 is this is really a biographical work that that doesn't devolve into hagiography you know like it it's he doesn't necessarily idealize his father he he portrays his father um in a way where he truly does feel like a real person you know not like some not like a saint or or something that is yeah. you know just completely idealized right uh, yeah. but he also but he also doesn't portray himself as like this victim of like he grew up in a in a as a child like in this hostile environment and like like mm-hmm. he himself like through the story you can see like he himself has shortcomings in terms of how he communicates with his father, how like how he like like takes care of his father and so forth. And like there's a certain sense of apology in there too, like saying like this is who I am. I'm I'm flawed as a human being too. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a- there are moments in the in the story where the he kind of kind of breaks the fourth wall where there's a certain he looks at you, like at the reader and kind of there's this there's this earnestness and wanting the reader to um understand this is him telling an honest tale and at first uh-huh. i was kind of bothered by it because i felt a little bit too earnest until i realized that what he's trying to communicate here is like not trying to convince us that it is true but simply saying like but uh more so that like he's not even trying to embellish the bad parts he's simply saying look we're human beings this is who we are mm-hmm. and you can't understand the story unless you understand who we are as human beings mm-hmm. yeah 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 there's a, a scene when he starts off book two, I think, where uh, he talks about the death of his father, you know, and it's it's a scene that jumps out at me because in it, as as his character, as his depiction of himself is talking, you can see him devolving into a child, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a yeah. great. Yeah, was it's a great out. little scene where he's he's clearly conflicted about the way that his relationship with his dad was and now upon dealing with the fact that his father has died he's he's gone back to just being a a you know a little boy who doesn't really have the security of a father right yeah and that's so, in the second chapter of the second book yeah yeah it's it's a great little moment and it's just him talking about the complexity it's just him trying to work out the the complexity of his feelings towards his father and 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 it's like you said he's not he's he's the main point of view for this story but he's not the hero of the story per se right correct yeah he's not he's not perfect and his Mm -hmm. father isn't perfect and the way they treat each other it's it's very real you know like you know, going back to what you said earlier about how this guy in Tennessee was complaining about it because, oh, that's not how I don't want to teach my kids to be disrespectful to their elders or whatever. <laughs> like, but you know what? We're all a part of families and there are moments. It's it's that whole idea of the thing about family is that. It, it's like that whole thing from uh, uh, Shakespeare, right? My 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 worst love born from my uh, 
worst hate or or my best love born from my worst hate whatever right but it's it's kind of that idea that because family is something that you're so intimately familiar with just due to proximity and time like your capacity to love them also means that you have a capacity to have great frustration and hate for them just because you guys are so close to each other you know we always hurt the ones we love exactly exactly right yeah that's that's just kind of how how it works you know when you're just around them so much and when you've come to know them so much their capacity to disappoint you and hurt you is that much higher because you expect just so much from them from family right Mm -hmm, so when they do hurt you it's so much more hurtful than if anybody else hurts you correct you know and and as you bring this up like something else i want to mention i'll mention now because it's in context is like what makes the story even more personal for me is that as i read the story i am able to identify with art spiegelman but i'm also identify i'm also able to identify his father as my father like their relationship is while not exactly the same as mine and my father's like there's so many similarities so many like like i can like i'm like i can feel art's frustration talking to his father but i can also feel his father's frustration at because as i represent the disappointment of his son in terms of, like the skill sets he hasn't picked up through his life and i'm like that is like almost like 85 percent like in my dynamic with my with my father yeah yeah that's one of the elements that always fascinated me with with mouse is that relationship between art and his father like obviously the vladek story surviving the holocaust is the central focus of mouse but for me i remember even the first time i read it i was just it's it really did strike me that there are these scenes throughout the different chapters where you see art interact with his father. And a lot of those interactions are at times awkward or uncomfortable, or even, you know, downright uh, disrespectful. And it, it's, it's just done in this presented in this unflinching way where you, you really get the sense of who both of those people are, you know, it, Mm. it just feels so realistic, so believable and knowing that Vladek is a real person depicted as a real person with with these you know with his own little quirks and whatnot it makes those scenes of him in the past feel that much heavier you know because it it really humanizes him as as a person you know that he's not just some um you know amazing superhuman that uh managed to survive because of his charisma or or whatever the case may be you know like it in a lot of ways it's like you see how the past has shaped him into the person that that he is when he's art's father in in those uh i guess present day scenes absolutely Mm -hmm. there's so many scenes throughout the book where you know you look at the 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 present day version of Vladek uh, as as an older man, and they're just behaviors that he's accumulated. Uh, 
but they come from somewhere, right? Yeah. It, it's not like they don't. So, you know, things like Vladuk being cheap or stingy or, you know. Hoarding stuff. Hoarding stuff, exactly. That's what he did to survive, man. Exactly, exactly. It's it's It draws a straight line between the all the stuff that he had to endure during World War II, during the Holocaust, to just who he is now. And I, I think, if again, if we took a step back, you know, for, for those of us who have whatever complications or things that we're not too happy about with our own parents, it it's understandable to picture those behaviors stemming from whatever they've been through in their life, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting because like there's a couple of contrasts. One is Mala herself, you know, says that she went through this experience. She also went to Holocaust, but she's like, but I didn't turn out like him. And I, I think the point of reflection isn't isn't that just because you turn out a certain way that everybody else who went that experience turns out the same way too. People deal with trauma in many different ways. Yeah. But what yeah. also I find very interesting is that there's also this other contrast because if you actually look at Vladik as a younger man going through the Holocaust. During those moments and he's like, you know, he's stuck in these camps or in trains and so forth, like he does these little acts of kindness to his fellow family and his fellow Jews he meets. Um when he had literally nothing, you know, left kind of to give sometimes, you could say, in comparison to his life in America. Mm-hmm. And yet in America, he appears to be stingier than he would than he than, than he needs to be because now he has a lot of money saved up. He has a place to live. He like He's not running to survive, you know. So I found that to be a very interesting contrast in terms of like his more giving nature during this harrowing time versus what appears to be a stinger attitude in this more relaxed um, older phase of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you guys something? Of course. So, well, okay. (laughs) It's it's a precursor. (laughs) Uh, so you want to ask us two things then? Two things, three things then. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, when was the last time you guys read it prior to reading it for this episode? For this, yeah, for for today's episode. Oh, oh man, it's been years. Really. I haven't. The first time I read this was the men- time mentioned. Really? So, yeah. So, so that's it was probably like, almost like a little under 20 years. Um, see, two, we're talking about 2000, yeah, almost under, yeah, under 20 years, yeah, maybe even 18 Ooh. years, 17, 18 years, yeah. Okay, so I guess my second question, or third question, is now that you've read it more recently and, and that it's fresh, is there anything that you feel like, was there anything different from, or that you feel like you remember differently, or that you experienced differently? in your reading of it this time that you didn't notice or feel from the first time you that that you read it oh yeah for me definitely a lot i think more so because in preparing for the podcast i was more i was paying a lot more attention to certain details and trying to like absorb both the art and the story itself uh-huh. so, uh-huh. so a lot more things i picked up that i don't think i recognized before things that like are, are now seared into my mind because of how like um I, I guess I mean I was like look, it's like oh how obvious it is how how clever his presentation is, but I think also as reading through the second book, um, like I just mentioned earlier, it actually became it made me more aware of like my dynamic with my father, like something I was always aware of, 
but more so like I'm not alone. And like, this is almost capturing that aspect. Like I could understand my father better in a way that I may not have before. Okay. Okay. And like, so, so for some, so, so from some clarity, my, my father was born in 46 so after world war two had ended, but uh, my parents both grew up in the Soviet union and their experiences there were not very, not too dissimilar from what Jews went through in Nazi Germany. Um, yeah. While there weren't Holocaust camps, concentration camps, there were very similar things going on in Soviet Union and the stories my father shared with me and the stories my mother shared with me, like you, you almost could swap the two and you wouldn't know the difference of what people went through, what Jews went through between the period of like the May 1930s through like the 1960s, the right, 1970s right. even. Right. Mm-hmm. Huh. What about you, Drew? In terms of things that I picked up on this time around versus the first couple times I read it, I think this time around I probably tried to pay a little bit more attention to the to the craft of it. I think usually when I reread stuff, that's that tends to be the kind of stuff that I I look at. So when I say I pay attention to the craft, I, I just mean that. I'm looking more at the way that uh, the pages are laid out. You know, like there's a lot of four-tier grids that he seems to favor, um, probably to to make it easy to read. It's it's not very flashy. Um, there's a stark contrast between the the blacks and whites because he doesn't really, um, you know, there's no real gray tones or anything in this. It, like any of the shadows, they're just uh, different uh, lines of weight, or just he just kind of like adds some hatching for different backgrounds or, and objects, you know. So like you might see a background where some bushes are just they just have like lines drawn at drawn through them diagonally, while a tree that's farther back is just a thick black line, you know. So it's like the different weights of of line work to indicate uh i don't know just the contrast of it all and um i think another thing that uh that stood out made me think about it or just something i thought about this time around was like the way because everybody is drawn as uh, some type of animal i started to realize you know they all look pretty much the same like all the all the mice look the same. All the cats look the same. All the pigs look the same. They, there's yeah. no real uh, way to differentiate unless they're wearing certain types of clothes or, or maybe somebody has glasses or something. Yeah. Um, I think there's like one scene where one of the uh, pigs or, you know, the poles is, is uh, he's kind of like, he hasn't shaved in a while. So you see a little stubble on his, around his jaw, like, it's just little differences, but like for the most part, everybody looks the same, which, which I think is purposeful choice. You know, like I'm, I haven't really thought super deeply about it, but that was something that um, I realized this time around. You know, maybe I yeah. thought about it last time, but don't especially really remember when it. you see the scenes where all the mice Jews are lined up or mm-hmm. like. It it looks so uniform, you know. It almost like a repeating pattern. It's it's pretty interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is. Like there was another thing that stood out a lot more this time around too. But uh, the scene you, you mentioned a few minutes ago about how uh, there's the one opening to uh, chapter two in book two, where you see Art Spiegelman uh, at his drawing board where he's talking to to the reader, and uh, that that scene is kind of intense actually. I thought because as the camera pulls back, when you get to the to the final panel of page 41 in book two, you just see that his drawing board is atop the corpses of, you know, dozens of, of bodies. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's just this heavy moment. It's also haunting. It's, it's really haunting. And then yeah. you have the, the media come to interview him about book one and stuff, right? And they're just... It seems like everybody's just ignoring those bodies. They're just walking on them, and uh, I don't know. It, it's like really They're unsettling. Just asking it, sensationalist questions too, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know it's like more like they want to be the the reporters to report on this like uh, rising star of a writer, but they care less about the content and what it means, and more like how they can like how they can bolster their own pockets or their own status. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that makes you kind of step back and and think about the story a little bit more, you know, like think about what you're reading a little bit more. It's, it's almost like, in a way, I wonder if if he felt that the success of the first volume of Mouse was, you know, just him. Like it was built on the bodies of everyone who died on the Holocaust, essentially. Oh, that's an interesting point, yeah. Like he yeah. like he wouldn't be able to tell this story if if all those people didn't die. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's like a really heavy sense of of uh, self awareness going on there. Yeah. Kind of like profiting from the dead, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And when you put it when you con- uh put it together with the fact that he's dealing with the grief that he's feeling and the guilt that he's feeling from. You know, the fact that his father died, you know, mm-hmm. that that's the subject matter that he's discussing in that particular scene. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it it all kind of it all makes sense. It all just fits together to to paint this picture of just how bad he must have felt. Yeah. Telling this story, you know, it's it's also it's it's the the guilt that he feels for our, for not having a better relationship with his dad, but it also feels like it's com- it's compounded by the fact that he feels guilt that he's making <clears throat> his name and his success on on this you know catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's also that part like um in the same sequence after he talks to, to the, all the media personalities, he goes and talks to his therapist, mentions how. He can't visualize Auschwitz or like the the tin factory that his father had worked in, or whatever he was doing. But it's but throughout the book, you see moments where it's in the present moment, and Art Spiegelman's reflecting like his his listening listening to the recordings of his father, and mm-hmm. you get the impression that and there's a I think in the second book he listened to a recording about something that he record that he wrote about in book one. Yeah. So you're getting this clear impression that he's revisiting all his recordings even after he's already written about them. And so his visualizations, his the, the the nightmares he's having is about the dead, but yet the simple things like 
just drawing a building somehow you can't visualize it. It's, it's almost like his mind is like he always says my mind is blocked, but we're not well, it's not clear in what way it's blocked. But then some sense mm -hmm. like all these bodies are blocking him from 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 escaping, from getting out in some sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that uh, since we're talking about that scene, I wanted to ask you guys because I, I wasn't I have some suspicions or some ideas, but I, I don't really know uh, what his intent was. But um, again, that scene on page 41 where he's on his drawing board. Like in that scene, when he draws himself, he's he drew himself as a normal human, but he's wearing a mask of a of a mouse. So I was just wondering what you guys and like the, even the other people that show up in that scene, including his uh, psych psychologist and wow. the media people that are interviewing him and talking to him, they're all people who are or humans wearing the mask of the animal that uh, represents them. So I was wondering what you guys made of that when you got to it. Yeah, you know, I wasn't sure what to make of it. Like on some level, I was maybe thinking like maybe he feels like a pretender as a Jew. Like, but then that wouldn't make sense because then he's communicating that everybody in those scenes are pretending to take on these roles that they think they should take on while dealing with him. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> which, which may be the case, you know. Um, the way I read it was, I feel like because the subject matter that he's discussing in that particular moment, like even though the work as a whole is this deeply personal piece of work that goes into his family history, this moment especially is a peek inside of his head in terms of what his feelings were, right? Because it, it's like you said, it's a moment where he's breaking the fourth wall and he's essentially talking directly to us, to the reader, in about what his feelings were uh, regarding his father, what his feelings were regarding his success, um, all these all these different complicated feelings that he was and emotions that he was going through. So I think by seeing the mouse mask as an actual mask just it just highlights the point that the way that i read it is it just highlights the point that this is a moment where we're peeking behind that mask to see what's going on behind the scenes what's going on in his head so how do you uh, contrast so that story so how would you contrast this with um the other scenes in the story about vladik when they were pig masks to hide as poles um, while like skirting around the streets trying to like one find food resources or a place to sleep. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's just a representation of it, it's, it's, it's a clever comic trick of showing what they were doing, which was in order to survive, they had to pretend that they were Polish people, right? Right. So, but I was simply asking, like, if, do you feel like there's a difference in the way he did that in in that uh, in those panels versus what he's trying to do here? Uh, it feels I, different for some reason. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like for when when you see the scene where <clears throat> they're dressed up as the pigs in order to hide out as poles or as the the polish like it feels like that's 
a technique used for storytelling convenience, right? Whereas you're not really getting that with this scene here. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you guys feel the same way about that. Oh but. no, I, I agree. Like I personally think it's different, but I was just curious if if you if you saw like if you found a way to compare or contrast them. And I guess the the way I guess I was seeing this panel now is I feel like he sees himself as by wearing the mouse mask that like he's trying to present himself like, like I really am Jewish. Like I'm not just writing the story to be profiting. Like it's a story of my people. Like uh, like the, uh, this idea like imposter like imposter syndrome. Like people have when they go with like a graduate program or when they first publish something and like they're like, you know, they're not established in the community. So it's like, is what they're doing really going to be considered a worthwhile work or is it just like, oh, just another one of these people trying to break through and just make 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 a name for themselves, you know? Right, right. I I don't know. It's an interesting question because part of me wonders if all writer or artists go through this, especially you know, writers or artists with any sense of integrity where, you know, uh, as they're telling the story and as they're processing everything that's going on, whether they're any of them take the time to take a step back and reassess what it is that they're doing and can recognize that there's something about it that might be questionable, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 the thing about the comic that makes it so fascinating is just that there are so many layers to it. Yeah, know? yeah, it's something that you can read over and over for the rest of your life. Just yeah, find new things to extract and appreciate and think about. Yeah. You know, I think a part of us also, like, in that sequence with the media, I think he was, I think on some level, he's also just simply trying to identify for us his perception or the identification he made of the people in there. Because there's this one guy who says, okay, let's talk about Israel. And I believe he's also wearing a a mouse mask. So I think he's simply saying, here's another, here's a Jewish person who's a Zionist. And his focus is on interpreting my, my, my book or using it as, as leverage for a Zionist message. Um, so, and then you have a scene with a guy who's wearing a cat mask, and he's he's very very hostile toward him. Um, so, like maybe on the surface level, he's just showing us like these are how, in my view, I characterized or identified these people as they were interviewing me about my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. makes it. That could be it. I, I don't. Yeah. This this I have another possibility, and I don't know if this like. You, you maybe you'll find a, a hole in this theory, but maybe he just drew him this way because this is the scene that takes place well after everything else in in the book, right? Because all the scenes with him and his father, uh, that those scenes were depicting things that happened obviously while his father was alive. So, uh, you know, before his father died in 1982, and this scene here on the at, the at the drawing table and with his psychologist, they take place clearly after 1986 because he's already talking about what happened in the aftermath of releasing the first volume of Mouse. So I don't I don't know if that has any kind of 
So are you saying that it's a device used to sh- denote the the passage of time between what the Possibly. present is? Okay. Possibly. Maybe maybe it's just to denote that in this section of the book or in this scene, he, he's, uh, you know, living in the era after the book has already come out. I don't know. I mean, that that was just something I thought of. I don't I can't really I don't think I can really defend it or anything like that. It's, it's just something that flew through my mind. Yeah, I don't think it's something that needs defending. I mean, it's it's certainly observational. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I one of the things I wanted to ask about, because we've we've spent a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, uh, art and his father. I mean, it's it's clearly a big part of the the book and the story, but. I I feel like we we didn't really discuss too much a lot of we didn't really discuss too much of Vladik's story of mm-hmm. just the different things he went through all the all the anecdotes regarding the Holocaust that you know were at the core of this comic yeah and uh, I just wonder if there's anything uh, that you guys uh, took away from that or anything that you mm-hmm. uh, noticed about any of the any of the anecdotes from uh, Vladek's story yeah I actually going back to your uh, other question about uh, was there anything that really stood out this time around when I read it I, w- uh-huh. I will say that from the very beginning uh, how it starts with these scenes of Vladek right before um you know everything goes down like it shows you scenes of him as a young man uh him with his first lover and and then how he met uh anya and and their time together as a as a young couple like i think the first time i read it i I think i felt like i i kind of glossed over those scenes because they i don't know just as a as a college student maybe it didn't really feel super relevant but uh-huh. uh when i was reading it again this week like i was hooked immediately into the story you know like i was like i we're gonna talk about it on friday i should probably uh flip through my copies and start rereading it you know and i was wasn't uh necessarily gonna like sit and like read 60 pages all at once or anything but that's pretty much what ended up happening because i was just engrossed in in his life you know his life before uh the nazis arrived in in poland so those scenes man i I think they really go a long way to to humanize vladik um because that that was something that really stood out this time around just seeing who he was as as a young man his uh sense of um his work ethic you know um his desire for family and and just yeah all those things in in daily life uh as he was with anya and and uh with her the rest of her family too like i just felt like those those first couple chapters did a really strong job of making you care about him as a person care about anya and and really i don't know just i guess makes you more empathetic to him um when you you know because if if all you had was like the scenes of him talking to art as an old man like he his you know it's those qualities where you see him as an older man where he's kind of uh 
you know, just a parent, uh, you know, just a father where he's kind of doesn't necessarily look at his son as as a full grown man, but, you know, occasionally uh, condescends to him or just, you know, doesn't give his son the, the, the information that he wants right away. It's it's interesting, man. Just the the layers of complexity that every real person is com- comprised of. You know, it really comes through when you see how he is in the different eras of his life. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like when he keeps calling Artie on occasion, like or and Artie and his wife like kids, even though they're clearly in their thirties. Yeah. And so forth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I found it, yeah, yeah. I like how you brought up like the early chapters because like. Um, Vladik's first girlfriend, quote unquote, as he put it, Lucia, like she, he explains, like, yeah, she was really incredibly beautiful, but he wasn't into her because her parents weren't, didn't have much, so they couldn't even get the dowry for a wedding. Mm-hmm. And whereas in contrast, there's this admission that Anya wasn't particularly pretty, you know, but she's like, but she was, you know, mentally special, like, not, I don't mean like in a bad way, but like she's like very bright, very like, you know, <laughs> very sensitive. Um, but but there's also this emphasis like she also came from a well-off family, and so he'd be marrying into money. So right. there's this immediate contrast where like, and and of course Lucia just get back at him by sending them a letter saying like he just wants the money, he doesn't really care about anything else. And on some level, you you, you know that she's spiteful, but you're also like, well, he did kind of almost admit that that was the kind of reason for not being with Lucia, even though he's clearly more attracted to her physically. But like you mentioned, because he was so focused on family and having a future, his mindset wasn't, I want to find, I want to bag the hottest chick. It's like, I want to find a person I can actually make a life with. And as the story progresses, his interaction with Anya very much is a loving one. Like, he takes care of her. He's looking out for her survival. Like, he truly does love her. Yeah, um, and and clearly after she committed suicide, his his life really, like, started to go downhill, like, with his health and, and everything. Yeah. And even... Yeah, and, and you know he still talks about her, and like you mentioned, uh, he clearly loves her more than he loved his second wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so like so like it's it's weird because they're clearly, and, and this is like I, this is where like I like the complexity. It's like he's a human being who's surviving. He wants to survive in the world and and be comfortable with with his family. So there will be phases of life where money becomes a concern, but you also see those. But you see a lot of those moments where money isn't as important as his family like the like the value of family and being with family like just even with her even with his in-laws the way he's he tries to help them and help them survive when things are going bad right mm-hmm. like you think about most people when they get married they like you hear all these tropes about how people dislike their in-laws and yet mm-hmm. you don't get that in the story there's it's like the exact opposite his in-laws very much care for him and support him even after his first factory gets robbed his his father-in-law says like, hey, it's okay. Well, let's start up again. I'll, I'll give you. I'll front you the money, you know. And it's it's so anybody who takes her from this like this sense of like you know the like and I love how Mala and and uh, Art kind of acknowledges like this stingy startup of of Jewish people. It's just like that's again that's a very like narrow view of like of a bias of a stereotype, right? If you believe it's true, you'll see that you'll see only that. But yeah. what we see here is. Like anybody else, he of course is concerned about his livelihood. He's concerned about taking care of his family, being being comfortable, living okay. But all that's motivated by loving his family and wanting his family to be okay. 
And like and and from experiencing the Holocaust later on as an older man, like preparing for the future, which is the thing he's going to leave behind for his son, his his really only sole surviving relative, the, the like 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 his very own you know blood and genetic you know future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a one particular scene that I I thought was interesting. Now that we're talking about, well, I mean we we've been talking about Vladik and his wife for quite a bit, but there's one point in the comic, I think it's in the first volume, where he he tells, I think Art draws like a two page scene where it shows where he talks about how he does a, a comic strip based on his relationship with his mother, you know? And in this scene, there he draws everybody as people. Do you guys remember that? You're talking oh, about the, the excerpt from uh, the Prisoner comic the that he made? Planet. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Prisoner on, on the Hell Planet. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something that was pretty interesting too, you know, because up to this point, we don't really... I, I feel like throughout most of it, we we read about Anya purely from a place where we view her in relation to, or we view her relative to Vladek, and we don't really see too much of what Art's feelings are on his mother. You know, mm-hmm. like. Uh, he a lot a lot of the book is spent on um, his relationship with his father, but in in this moment we again we we peek behind the scene and we get a little bit of what their dynamic is like, you know. Yeah, and it, it's uh, still pretty haunting, even though it's such a brief segment. Yeah. 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 Particularly that the the two panels where she walks into his room, I guess, and like the whole time he's dressed like a like a prisoner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and she asks him, Artie, used to love me, don't you?" And in the next yeah. panel, you see him turn away, and and like this is the way he draws his own face, like this look of like of uh, of disgust, like like why are you even asking this silly question? Like I'm a, I'm an adult man. And he's like, "Sure, yeah. ma." And you see her face and her and she's downcast. Like, you can see like it's her response after his after his response yeah. to her, like. She's yeah. like, okay. Uh, and it's like, he says, sure, Ma, but it's like, we understand that he doesn't want to be bothered by that question. He doesn't want to address it. Yeah, and, he almost feels like a teenager in that moment, right? Yeah. Like, just kind of like a moody, pouty teenager. Well, he, he was pretty young in that scene because, again, he was he was born in 1948. His mother died in 1968, so he was 20. And yeah. uh, on top of that, the... the f- opening of the prisoner on the hell planet depicts him or he, he explains that he had been he out of the mental, the mental right? hospital. Yeah. yeah. He had just yeah. been released from a mental hospital. Yeah. And uh, yeah, according to, I think Wikipedia that, that uh, tracks, you know, like it's not just something he made up for the story. Like he, he did yeah, have like yeah, some yeah. kind of mental breakdown. Yeah. When he was younger. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, I like your point, Albert, because it's it from those, like that was two or three panels. Like you get this, from this really short story, like you right away get that he doesn't even have guilt about his dynamic with his father, but he's also carrying the weight of guilt of like he thinks he's he kind of was involved in killing his mother. Yeah, yeah, right. That's kind of the takeaway from that one scene is he's still living with those feelings, right? 
yeah just really it's uh it's really heavy man it's it's heavy yeah. and it's it's heartbreaking yeah 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 i mean to survive all of that to find out that your own son maybe doesn't love you yeah like that and 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 we get even through the first book that we know that she herself was had like like dep- like i guess case of depression mental instability as well um yeah i remember early on in the book there was a scene where vladik um you know i think when he was courting her um he went to her house and he was in her room and he noticed that she had uh various pills mhm yeah yeah yeah, but even after they got married, I think he went with her to a sanitarium where he spent some time with her there. Yeah, that too. Yeah. I mean, we definitely are in an age now where our understanding of mental health is different than it was. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if they just weren't equipped to treat her, right? You know, they I'm sure they did the best that they could, but... Yeah. Yeah. Right. So for me, I want to ask the question, like, which panel or scene, like, stood out to me the most? I Based on what you've shared about the page numbers in your copy, Drew, it's in the first book. I think for you it would be page 129. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when Anya and Vladik are, like, running around Poland trying to find a place to stay. And this mm-hmm. is one larger size panel where they just kind of are going off in a random road. I think and I know what, the, you're, what you're talking about. The crossroads the panel, right? They're shaped like a swastika. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know why. And this is the thing that I'm saying that when I said earlier about how things were seared more to my mind. This panel is now seared into my mind. Like, it's more obvious to me now, like, what Art Spiegelman was doing through his art. Like, and I'm like, this is incredibly clever. It's just like, what he's simply saying is like, no matter where they'll go, there was nowhere safe to go. Everywhere around them in Poland was pretty much just Nazi Germany. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that... That was a really powerful panel. And even I think later on, as he's as he, when he goes back to that moment story, I think of the next chapter when they're still walking, you can still see that they're coming out of a trailhead, and it's it's one of the sections of one of the swastika ends of the of the crossroad. Yeah. Um. Yeah. We stick towards Sosniewicz, and I'm like, for me, that's so evocative, but also there's a certain loneliness to it because even though you see like other people on the road, like farmers with carts. Like, by the perspective, like, Ani and Vladik, you see them from the backside. They're the biggest people there. But this road still seems so encompassing and, and, like, just seems to swallow anybody who goes in any direction. Yeah. Even the fact that the trees have no leaves and stuff, it just makes it seem desolate and forlorn. Desolate, forlorn, and also, like, there's no there's no protection, there's no cover. It's mm-hmm. like they're exposed. Yeah. And I think just the fact that everything on the ground, except for the swastika intersection has hatching on it so you mm-hmm. just it's like just pure white you know yeah. so the, like the contrast of it just makes it stand out as an image it's very graphic yeah, yeah. For, for me that was that was a very evocative panel like i just like sat there and started for a little while mm-hmm. yeah that that definitely made me pause too yeah speaking of art style like you, you you mentioned that Art Spiegelman was kind of in that what what did you call it earlier the what what, what kind of uh, comics was he doing Renegade comics did you say underground comics or alternative comics? comics yeah like do you think his style 
like I, I I'm not gonna say that underground comics as a whole has like a cohesive style, but there is something that I recognize in his in the style of Mouse that I don't know. It feels like it comes from that era, you know, from from his contemporaries that were you know making mm-hmm. comics you know the fact that it's black and white is is definitely i guess a signifier to some degree yeah but just all the sketchiness and the line work uh like just the fact that so much of the uh, the mood is communicated through the line work is is another uh hint of that style right of that collective style you know yeah Heck, I was just thinking about, again, going back to Prisoner on the Hell Planet, like that four-page comic within the comic, It's that is drawn in a style that's definitely like those underground comics of, of the era. You know, like you look at that and it still looks like something that would be fresh today. You know, like that art, that comic was made in 1972 and it doesn't look aged, you know? it's It looks... It looks like something you could still see today. It looks better than a lot of stuff you see today, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... One of the things that came to mind was it kind of reminds me of... uh, Woodcuts? Yeah, woodcuts, but I was going to say... I don't know if you guys know Keith Haring. Keith Haring? I'm not familiar. Like, he was a guy who was big in the uh in the 80s as well i think uh i'm sure if you saw any of his artwork he did like a lot of street art i think but if you saw it you would recognize it uh a lot of the times he he drew like a lot of these stick figure type people and he he drew them kind of in dance or in motion but the thing about it his art style was that it was super simple but it conveyed so much at the same time, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. It's, I'd say Art Spiegelman's style is definitely more complex than that. He, he, but there is something about it that's simplistic as well, you know? Yeah, like, and I think it's it's very intentional too. Like if you look oh yeah, at some absolutely. of his other if you look absolutely. at some of his other comics, they're they're pretty different looking from Mouse. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I remember reading uh Breakdowns and also uh In the Shadow of No Towers. Like those those are definitely those definitely have that underground alternative aesthetic. Whereas Mouse this, this is a comic that like anybody can read you know like somebody could pick up breakdowns and be like what the heck is this you know like this is too uh-huh. this is too weird but yeah. but mouse is just again it's just it's deceptively simple you know because it, it's done in a drawn in a way that's so easy to read but it's also uh not it's just like complex enough to tell a really meaningful story but it, it doesn't bog you down with things that that would hinder that experience just for the sake yeah. of flash or or style yeah, yeah i was also gonna say like there's also an aspect of this which i almost feel like having this like in color would detract from the pure rawness of what he's trying yeah. to express yeah and it, it's very much like it, like when he's like 
Schindler's List, right, is a movie made in the 90s, but it's a black and white movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's because I think as a story, they're both meant to evoke a sense of feeling and not be distracted by a color palette. It's, it's like you're just watching a story about human beings behaving like either the best or worst version of human beings you could ever imagine. Yeah. Also, yeah. like, to be fair, like, in this whole story, right, they're talking about early, like, 1930s, 1940s Europe and Poland particularly, like, everybody there was white. And I feel like this contrast is just, like, it serves that purpose of communicating that it's, if, if you want to consider it that way, it, in some way, you could say, like, this is really white on white hate. <laughs> Nazis didn't see Jews as, as you know, as white or Aryan. Like, uh, for for me, the art is is just is it worked so well. Like like I said, it is deceptively simple. It's simple, but because of the way it's drawn, because of its rawness, it conveys so much more through it. Yeah, yeah. There was another uh, scene that hit me. It was pretty profound, actually, like pretty moving. But in book one, uh, on page one twenty two, it's the scene when Anya realizes that like all her family members, including her son are dying. Right. And, and like she collapses on the ground uh, because she thinks that even her nephew is going to die. And she's like, the whole family is gone. Grandma and grandpa, Papa, Mama, Tosha, Bibi, Myra show. Now they'll take Lolik. Um, And then next panel, she's just, again face down on the ground she's just kind of hysterical yelling oh god let me die too yeah and and vladik's uh kneeling by her come anya get up and then she yells why are you pulling me vladik leave me alone i don't want to live and then just this four panel sequence at the bottom of the page where he says no darling to die it's easy but you have to struggle for life until the last moment we must struggle together i need you and then that fourth panel it it goes you see vladik in the period of time when he's telling art the story so you know it's his it's old man vladik and he says and you'll see that together we'll survive this always i told to her yeah that was that was both empowering but also incredibly sad because the way he's looking down it's like He's not together with her, so they, we haven't survived. Only he so far has survived. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, this always I told to her. So it's like he's like saying I lied to her, you know, I lied to the one person I loved. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that, that scene just made me pause, you know, like, I was reading it uh, at night, and then I was like, wow, that was... That was some heavy stuff. Um, yeah, man. It. I don't know. Even even just reading it now, it, it, I just feel moved by it. Yeah. Yeah. It it kind of mirrors like, you know, a lot of these when you watch these um, movies that you know like that involve like drama or like high tension within families and this. You know, the, the a kid. It's usually between like a parent and a kid. And the kid like wants that assurance, like we'll all be okay. That you know, mom, dad, you'll still be, you'll still be alive. You're gonna do something, like quote unquote, stupidly heroic. But you know, we'll we'll survive, right? Well, you'll I'll still see you on the other side. And mm-hmm. sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, right? This 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 
the sense of innocent expectation of like, yeah, as long as we're together, everything will be fine, even though we know in reality that that's not really always the case. Yeah. Um, something else I liked a lot was actually very early on in the first book. Um, I think it was, it was definitely in the first chapter, page 14 for me, I think, page 12 for you, Drew. Um, when Artie is trying to convince his father, like, please tell me your stories because, you know, I, I want to, like, I want to write this. I want to share this with the world. And artists and like, mm-hmm. like, like, no one wants any way to hear such stories. It's like, like for him, it's like, who, who would care about my story? Who would care to learn to hear or read about the story of one Jew survival in the Holocaust? Let alone, what if people don't even care about the Holocaust? And there's a certain prescience in his remark because while the, the um, while there's a lot of people still understand and historically um, recognize and think about and discuss the Holocaust, as we've farther and farther away from it, right? We're, we're nearly approaching like, like 100 years from when these events happened, really, about it. Like how much of the world is it like, doesn't think about it, doesn't care about it. And to the point where there are people who are trying to revise history to pretend like it never happened. Yeah. And like, if anything, it's more important now than ever that people revisit this and like remind themselves of what has happened. You know? And, yeah. and I, but I think it echoes also a reflection of like it's not just the, the story of the Jews and the Holocaust, but the story of, of any group or any minority that has gone through such hell, you know, like the slavery period of America, you know, and other points in history. It's just like we seem to want to forget these things and then we lower and behold repeat them. And it's just it's and we think we learn like, oh, you know, we'll never do it again. But just like it's it almost feels like um like flopping our lips like are we really learning from what happened before are we really learning and evolving as, as a society uh, i don't know it's, it's yeah i mean it's, it's hard to say man it's it's uh depressing when you think about it it's also very terrifying because it's like you know while i'm not super young i'm also not old i'm thinking like hey will there be a point while i'm alive where something like this will happen again and i'm like i want to believe not but at the same time like it's like i wouldn't be surprised yeah, yeah. i mean it was only a few years ago uh, when we had a bunch of people holding tiki torches walking through Charlottesville, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I think, I think, like 15 years ago, I would have thought that was pretty unimaginable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like now, it's like, oh, okay. So there are enough people, you know, to to do stuff like that that will yeah. actually go all the way somewhere to get together with with other like-minded people and and like make a a demonstration or whatever you want to call it yeah and you can almost guarantee if they were ever in a position of power they would do some pretty terrible stuff you know yeah exactly that's that's the thing that's the added extra layer of it that makes it terrifying is that you, you can't just relegate them to some sort of fringe group or whatever because there's enough of them that you can tell yourself that seriously yeah exactly you can't just ignore them there's enough of them that under the right circumstances they could affect you know policy day-to-day living you know Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like on both sides of the spectrum it's like anytime in this happens constantly day-to-day it's like you see these people who the moment you say anything that somebody doesn't dislike, there's always a, a loud contingent of people like say, you can't say that. We won't let you say it. And if you say that, like you, you deserve death. It's like there's this there's this pervasive attitude amongst people, like even the more progressive people, where 
if you just don't think the right, you don't think, think like them, it's like somehow you are like this vile enemy that deserves to be just utterly destroyed. And it's, and like this, like very, it's you versus me attitude is, is very alarming. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This whole, this whole sense, like, and this goes back to the whole censorship thing, like control of thought and speech, which is very much how Nazi Germany came to power, uh, you know, because Hitler did the right thing, right? In terms of taking power, he learned, he found a way to control the media. Wait, did you say he did the right thing? What I said in terms of controlling power. <laughs> oh, like, in the, <laughs> like, like, if you want to control over millions of people, <laughs> how do you do it? You take over the media. You 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 tell and control the media to the point where you tell your people what you want them to hear over and over and over again, where they only can see the world around them through that lens. Like the, the hate for the Jews, while it may have been there amongst the various people, it took years of him being in various roles of power before he became the viewer to get the German people to see Jews the way he wanted them to. Yeah. One of the books has a an epigraph from him, right? I think, was it book two? An epigraph from... Or I guess it wasn't from Hitler. Wait, was it? I thought there was some... Wasn't there something about how... Um, Hitler had a quote where he said that I, I can't remember exactly, but he said something like how uh, the the Jews are are not human or something to that effect. Um, oh, maybe like like one of the intros to one of the chapters or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to trying to look for it. I remember seeing a passage like this, but I remember oh yeah, I, I see it. it. It's just on uh before the book even begins on on the page with like the the thanks in book one. It says uh. There's a quote from Adolf Hitler that says, the Jews are undoubtedly a race, but they are not human. Yes, that one, that's true, yeah, yeah. I guess there's a sense of irony that in this comic, they're all depicted as animals. <laughs> right. But, in, but but everybody's depicted as an animal, right? Yeah. Actually, on that comment, I was actually wanting to explore this this um, the metaphor of the animals that Arts Spiegelman uses for representation. Yeah. Because... When I first heard this, I didn't quite understand why he picked m- mice for Jews and cats for Germans. Other than like, cats prey on mice. So like, this was clearly like just maybe that was a simple read. But as I kept reading this again the second time, I was reflecting more on the fact that um, there are a lot of like phrases where you know the Nazis viewed Jews not as mice but really as as rodents, as as, as like rats, like other like you know like. Like gutter trash, you know, like just those utter ver- vile vermin. Yeah. But whereas mice tend to be cleaner, there's a certain nobility to them, and and in various cultures also, like mice are a more prominent character. I think isn't isn't like I know in, in like, not that related, but like in in the Chinese Lunar New Year story, isn't that a mouse that wins the race because she, it jumps off the front of some animal? I believe so. I think that's why it gets to start the calendar, like the cycle. Right. But I could be wrong. Um, so while sneaky, it's still considered noble. It's considered smart and, you know, like clever. And something I realized, too, is like cats like to play with their food, right? Mm. And in, from what I understand from history and what we see in the story, like the Germans played with the Jews in the concentration camps. Like the way they, they like, okay, yeah, we'll... Well, if you give us something, we'll we'll let you run away into the forest. And lo and behold, they still shoot them in the back. Oh, you have a problem? Uh, go do this. And then while you're running away, I'll shoot you because I'll just claim you're trying to run away. Yeah. So like, they're literally playing with the Jews as though they're food, as they're, like, they're, they're, they're prey. But there's also this contrast where we think of 
cats as being more like regal animals, right? Like the Egyptians value them very much, like the way they clean themselves, groom themselves, and, and behave. But there's also a raw feralness to these cats, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, like, like feral cats are really vicious, like the kind of like the worst kind of animal you never want to confront. And we actually see this feralness portrayed through the cats in this story. Like as much as people want to think of cats as regal, like like higher animals, in this case, what we see is is them as they're more the animals than the than the mice are from the perspective. You know, it's like it's not the Jews that weren't human; it's the Nazis who were no longer human. Mm, yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, it does feel like, yeah, it, it's like you were saying the the cats. I think of the domesticated animals. It's fair to say that cats are probably the most that have retained their most uh, almost ferocious animalistic in- instincts, you know? Right, but like, uh, like it's more the conscious of the surface, right? On the surface, we think of mice as like dirty. We have mouse traps set up in the house, right? Yeah. When we see one, yeah. but we don't set up cat traps to kill a cat. We're just like, oh, it's a cat doing its thing. But <laughs> yeah. the conscious is that we see this polar opposite where these these mice are clean and noble and and just simply meek creatures, but the cats in the story take on the opposite perspective, like this raw, like animalistic behavior, like this, this like uncontrollable, like just, you know, like, I don't know, like I always use the word feral again, you know, like, so I, I like the contest where on one perspective, one might see the cats versus mice as cats are regal, mice are filthy and dirty, but it's really the opposite here. It's where the mice are the meek, you know, animals and the cats here are like the vicious, you know, killers. Yeah. The other interesting element to consider is that even though the different peoples are depicted as animals, there are still actual animals that inhabit the world. You know, like they don't actually comment on each other being mice or or cats or anything. They just consider themselves Jews or Germans or, uh, you know, whatever they may be. But even the the Nazis have uh, literal attack dogs, you know? Right, right. And and then they eat chickens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they eat chickens. Um, there's a scene when Vladik and Anya are hiding in a some kind of cellar or somewhere underground, I think, and and uh, they're worried about rats. And <laughs> I think he, I think he even says <laughs> that there's like a rat that runs that like was running across their bodies or something, and. Like because Anya was afraid of rats, he would he just told her that it was only a little mouse, so nothing yes, to be yes, afraid yes, of. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. The barn where they're hiding, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny That's... because we that panel, but it's only later on in the second book when he speaks to his therapist. And he mentions his therapist has like a whole lot of dogs and cats that he owns. In that That's panel, right. it's like, does this does this make my metaphor like not work? But it's funny he brings it up then, but not when that well, not when that rat is scurrying around and and Vladik tells Anya like it's just a mouse. Yeah, and doesn't his psychologist or psychiatrist have a photo of a pet cat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be like a little meta tongue-in-cheek joke where he just kind of acknowledges the. Uh, I guess you know just the absurdity of 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 mm-hmm. having animals in a world where the characters are all anthropomorphic animals, right? Yeah, I I did read that when they were set to publish Mouse in Poland, there were a lot of protesters because 
the Polish people were depicted as pigs. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it it I, it was a long road to getting it published in Poland. Yeah. I I'm not surprised. <sighs> Poland still to this day I feel has some cultural issues, but that's just yeah. my personal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the ending a little. Is that okay, or do you, did you guys want to go into it a little more? Oh, we can talk no, about what you want. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we're not really going linearly through the book, so I... Th- okay. I did enjoy the ending of the book. Like, you know, this this isn't really... I mean, I guess it's spoilers, but uh, we're already here. Um, <laughs> reading I mean, it... Sure this book's been published for a long time now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But reading the book, there was... You know, it, it's a story that where you already kind of know what direction things are going because one, um, you know, very early on, you get the idea or you get the knowledge that uh, um, that Art's mother has committed suicide. It's something that looms over the entirety of the book, you mm-hmm. know. And then there's also just the severity of everything that happens in the Holocaust, as well as the fraught nature of Art's relationship with his father. There's just a lot of really heavy stuff, right? And I could see how, as a first-time reader, you're just kind of curious how how it all comes to an end. And I, I will say that I did appreciate the ending, because when you finally get there and you get to this place where right at the beginning of book two, you, you already know that Art's dad, that Vladek has died, you know? Mm-hmm. So where where can you really go to, to close out the story? And, and what Art does is he ends it on, I think, as best a note as he possibly could, you know? Uh, at one point, Mala has run off with uh, Vladek's money, uh, Mala being Vladek's second wife. Uh, They have this really complicated relationship as well, but she runs off with his money, and, uh, you know, he he thinks he's going to be alone there, but what ends up happening is he has some medical complications, and she comes back into his life, and in this entire last chunk of the book, uh, you know, it's them getting to be together one last time, it's us as the reader seeing them together one last time and having a good moment with each other, you know, and before he finally closes it out with just a picture of Vladek and Anya's tombstone. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. There was something about that that was pretty, I guess, uplifting in after the entire journey that we'd been through for everything, you know? Kind of like this idea of like truly rest in peace, right? Yeah, but even even in in seeing that they get this final moment, this final eternity together, like even even in the scenes leading up to it, there's it's that moment when uh when Vladik and Anya are finally reunited. It's just full of joy, you know. Like even the way that that page is drawn, it's just the two of them with the white circle behind them while they're embracing. And that's yeah. true. Yeah, and, that's uh, 
Yeah, and, and Vladek's narration is just more. I don't need to tell you. We were both very happy and lived happy, happy ever after. Exactly. Like, and for that to be the exact like last note that they end on is their reuniting with each other. Like, even though we as the reader know what ends up happening years after that, we know that she ends up committing suicide. But to end it on that moment, there's a beauty to that. Yeah, you know? it's a it's an artful way to end it. Yeah. Also, it kind of like it reflects that this is probably the memory that mm-hmm. Vladik um, holds on to, which is despite everything that may have come afterward, he still holds on to that memory of like they both survived the Holocaust and they found each other and they had a life together. They had they had art, you know, as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But also like the the touching end with the tombstone is like yes, they've passed away as all human mortals do. Yeah. But in some sense, you could also say that they did survive together through memory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then even the the two panels in between the embrace and the gravestone, the those two panels where where you have on the last page where you have uh, Vladek lying in bed uh, talking to Art saying, yeah. so let's stop, please, your tape recorder. I'm tired from talking to the show, and it's enough stories for now. Yeah. <laughs> like... Like, number one, like, the fact that he calls Art by the, the name of his son who died in the war. And, and, like, just the fact that this final page gives you the reuniting of Vladek and Anya, but it also gives you one more moment between father and son. There's there's a poetry to it, you know? Like, it's... Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's so something that... About- would you say moment between father and son or father and sons since in that moment he refers to Rochelle? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like that's a necessary moment to to end the story because the story is not just these flashback scenes or the biographical elements about Vladek's survival through the Holocaust, but it's also Art's story and his relationship with his dad. So it, I think it was definitely necessary to have that closure on the final page as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, did you guys have uh, any other scenes that you wanted to go over? You have anything, Shanus? I have a lot, but just I, just a lot of just I just take notes and like over the course of the story, like the me observing like how art reflected on his record with his father, like a brief, like we talked about a little bit before, because like we see repeat like how like. Art complains about how he can never do anything right by his father, like like he's like a disappointment, <laughs> which again is, is something that I can I can understand and relate to, because uh, the thing that like for example, like we see like you mentioned before like the resourcefulness of Vladik during pre and during the war, right, and even after the war, like he he's observant, he picks up on the various trade skills to survive and like do a lot of different things, and even when he lives in America, he would prefer to do things by his own hand and save money than pay somebody to do it for him, you know? Yeah. Um, and as, as as much as I like those ideas, like I'll admit, like I'm probably the, I'm probably a very lazy person, and like as and I wouldn't do the things that around the household chores that my father typically would do. Like 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 there are skill sets I am lacking in life that you know, like I think the older generations had to do because they didn't have access to the same technology and services that we do now. True. Um, True. Uh, but but it's it's, it's strange because there's a, there's this disappointment going toward Artie, but there's also like a sense of disappointment like Artie has towards his father. But like 
like he wishes he like he always you get the sense like art feels like he wasn't loved as much like like he even mentions that he, like because Rousseau was so young and died he could never he could never do anything wrong so he's like this ideal he could never compete against yeah yeah that's a good point yeah I remember that scene um the thing I did find interesting for myself as a, just more of like a Jewish, a Jewish perspective is that um Art mentions how he was an observant, he was a religious observant Jew. Um, but during, during their, during, while, while they're running away, like on occasion they get like sausage to eat. And as I understand, Polish sausages are pork based. So mm-hmm. I was kind of intrigued if that was just more a sacrifice they made or if it was like, kind of like an adjustment of cultural attitude while living in Poland as being a religious Jew, but maybe not that religious or after, or because of what was going on, like they kind of had to be like they made the choice to like, survive and that meant giving up certain like um i won't say customs but like sacrificing a certain sense of their identity just to survive and like just eat something i guess yeah. but that bleeds into the fact that art marries francois who is french but not jewish and they even that little that little story where she's like well i even converted to make him happy and it's like <laughs> and, yeah and it's a, it's a fake conversion it's like it's it's clearly like done by probably some sort of reform rabbi who's just like, you know, just go ahead. You want to be Jewish. It's like joining a club. Right. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, Vladek never mentions that in any kind of negative way, which is typically unusual because for a lot of religious Jewish parents, um, that's something they will harp on over and over and over again, even after their kids get married to like, um, a, to a non-Jewish person. But I, I, I did find that interesting. That I mean, of course, we don't. It's not clear whether or not he was actually okay with it, but it seemed like he accepted it. Yeah, yeah, he didn't like mistreat her or ignore her or anything. Like he acknowledged her as part of his family. Yeah, and even when she helped, like, say, like, look, how about you guys go for the walk? I'll like do the the accounting tabulations for your bank stuff. He's like, yes, please do this because Artie will mess us up. It's like, it's like, it's like he trusts her more than he trusts Artie. You know? Yeah, it's it was, it was a very interesting like uh, exchange there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those things, I guess, where uh, his Vladek's uh, again, it's his quirks that that really humanize him and, and present him as like a real individual. You know, mm-hmm. like the other thing that that. Uh, I thought of was that scene when they're all driving in the car and she picks up the hitchhiker who's a black <laughs> guy and 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 Vladek is just like he's besides he's being racist racist <laughs> yeah. I mean there's really no other way to put it yeah. no yeah I thought yeah. about uh I was trying to think if there was some kind of a diplomatic way to say no, that he's <laughs> no I couldn't think of one no again it's it's like again as I say, like I, I, I can connect him. Like I connect a lot, of, a lot with, like with my, with my father, my parents. Like there's, there's a certain, there's always gonna be some sort of cultural bias, right? It's, it's very, very strange. But I think there's also a point of comparison being made, which is, I think, I think most people are inherently, in some level, racist based on the communities they grew up in, I what mean, I see in the am. news and media. They're Wait, what'd you say, also- Albert? <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Wait. Say that again, Albert. <laughs> Say it into the mic. Uh, no, no, go on. Go on, Janus. 
but I think there's also he's offering, but he's I think also arguing cautious, meaning that like you know maybe the average person isn't some level racist, but the average person also isn't going to go and try to round up people of a certain ethnicity and pray them naked before killing them. Like yeah. it takes a certain level of like of like of just giving up your humanity to treat others inhuman inhumanely. Yeah. Yeah, you it's it's it is definitely a troubling thing to see because um like one of the other things in the story that popped into mind it's also close to the very end of the book. Uh basically like what is this? Like the fifth to the last page on page 132 of the of volume 2. <clears throat> there's a, a little story about one of the uh somebody that um that Vladik knew in, in Poland, he went back to his hometown after the war and he found that uh, his, like some Polish guy was living in his family's house. And then the guy, when he goes back to the house and he's like, this is my family's house. I'm Gel- Gelber. And then the guy like just gets upset and grabs him by the collar. And he's like, we thought Hitler finished you off. Get out <laughs> of here. You know, like yeah. go away, Jew. This is our bakery now is what he says. And then, yeah. And then that guy, ends up getting beaten and hanged by a group of Poles later that night, you know, like that's, Mm -hmm. it's like, man, just things like that are just, I don't know, man, troubling, disappointing, uh, outrageous, you know, any of those adjectives. And it's, it's like, has the world really changed, man? I mean, no, it's a tales all this time, right? Even if you look at American history, right, like we had the war with Mexico just so we could really justify taking over like Texas and California, right? Like mm-hmm. we took it when like in not just America, but like throughout history, like the whole point of war was to conquest, you know, get more land, like feel like more powerful. And like you take over the land and somebody comes back and says, hey, this is really our place. And it's just, like, well, what response do you think they'll get from the, from the people currently living there? Get off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought, yeah. we, I thought we I thought we ran you off of this land. We're not gonna give it back. Yeah, exactly. So like, yeah. So like, in that perspective, sure, it's hateful, but at the same time, it's like, it's also understandable, right? Human nature. Yeah. It's just bad. But yeah, no, I just there's a there's a lot. I like I I just I think overall I just appreciate the honesty and the reflection of of both who art is and who Vladik was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's definitely something that I think everybody should read. Yeah. Whether or not they're into comics, it's just an important work, you know? Right. Like it, uh-huh. It's it's like people talk about mouse and I mean we were talking about mouse as an educational work, you know, and it's definitely educational, but it it's also very artistic and and just as a piece of art you know i I think i think people really do need to appreciate it as as a work of art not just treat it as like a textbook or something yeah i guess it can be both yeah yeah just i just i guess i think also overall what i appreciate about this book is despite being a story about the holocaust and one jew survival I think art does a good job of kind of reflecting the fact that 
despite the Jews having been victims, they themselves are prone to behaviors that are very much similar to what they were victims of. And like going back to this, to going back to the panel about you know them picking up the black guy, right? Like Black's trying to justify by like saying like you know you don't know what I went through when I first came here, like how they how I like what happened when I was around them, and it's like like but his his experience was was a very like like unique like experience in that moment in that place at that time right it wasn't it wasn't a grand experience overall like everybody who was black treated him that way it was just that mm -hmm. particular thing that solidified for him his view of those people right yeah and, but that's very much the attitude that you know that people take towards other people not just jews it's just we live by stereotypes sometimes because it's easier to 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 be simple-minded than to look at people as people and think about how they're interacting and, and to like acknowledge the complexity of people mm -hmm. because all the justifications for the way people treated the jewish people during the holocaust the, a lot of the ways people treated the black people you know as slaves and even post-slavery was they viewed them through the lens of that stereotype and they saw them as less than human they saw them as as disposable or as they could treat them they could justify treating them certainly because they behave a certain way yeah and and lo and behold vladek is doing the exact same thing to this black guy yeah, like that's, he's not running that's nature to some degree. Yeah, he's like he's not running mm -hmm. after him with a pitchfork and trying to kill him, but like it's it's that idea that it's that seed that eventually can build to something to build something worse, you know. And yeah. I guess if anything, I, I just take this story as a cautionary tale of like not just what has happened, but what is happening and what may still happen if we're not cognizant of our own behavior and of our own prejudices and taking a step back and saying, okay, why am I like this and am I really justified or should I really like just expose myself more to see who else is out there? Like that that's not about just a stereotype. It's about just this individual person has this trait and that's their flaw. It's their problem. And I shouldn't mm -hmm. take that onto others. Yeah. Yeah. I think to a certain degree, it is important to remember that Mouse is is still a story specifically through Vladek's eyes and, and Art's eyes as well. Like it's it's a story about the Holocaust, but you notice that Art doesn't uh, interview Mala about her experience surviving the Holocaust, you know? Like, yeah. he clearly had access to her, but he you don't see him uh, interviewing her or, or recording their conversations so that he can learn what she went through. He also had a psychologist who was a Holocaust survivor. He doesn't ask that guy what his experience is, really, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't... I don't think he was really trying to tell a story, like a definitive story about the Holocaust. You know, he was telling mm -hmm. a story about his dad and what his dad went through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think also like we're like obviously like also because with his dad, he's also able to tell a story about his relationship with his father, you know, and his perception of the Holocaust, his perception of himself as a Jew, his perception as him of himself as a person in in a in a world where he grew up in a period of time when you know he had the civil rights movement, this 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 changing attitude towards um, you know open arms, and we are all just human beings, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. So like I feel like I don't know. It, there's definitely a lot of layers to the story which I can't even always peel away at, but it. But like I said, it's not just a book for academic textualization but also just a a beautiful work of art itself yeah there's a lot of raw feeling in here that if you just sit down and read it just for that purpose there's a totally, lot man. to walk away with yeah absolutely yeah
Yeah, one of the things that uh, I wanted to, to highlight before we uh, end our discussion was, again, going back to the that interview I mentioned uh, that Spiegelman had with uh, Abraham Riesman for the Vulture article. Spiegelman didn't set out to create a work that would teach or educate people. He says as much in that scene in, in volume two when he's talking to those people at his drawing board. But the fact that his intensely personal book turned out to be massively influential and, and an important teaching tool was kind of happenstance. And he has explicitly stated that he didn't create Mouse in the context of teaching people to be better in the interview. And here I'm going to quote him. He says, I never wanted Mouse to be for children. I wasn't doing it in the context of I'm going to teach people to be better. I'm going to teach people that they should learn about the Holocaust because never again. And again, to, to quote from that same interview, uh, Spiegelman, going back to the, to, the, to the school board's banning of Mouse, Spiegelman said that he thought their decision was because, not necessarily because of any like anti-Semitism, but uh, I mean, I guess he was like giving them the benefit of the doubt there. But he said he, he thought it was because the narrative in Mouse isn't very cathartic. And uh, now this is Riesman's commentary. And, and Riesman writes, there are no saviors. No one is redeemed. The characters, Spiegelman's family, remain the imperfect people they were to begin with. And then Spiegelman himself says, and I quote, it's a very not Christian book. Vladik didn't become better as a result of his suffering. He just got to suffer. They want to teach the Holocaust. They just want a friendlier Holocaust to teach. So I do feel like there's yeah. some truth to that. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of discussion around like the whitewashing of history and a lot yeah, of I don't, I just don't see how you can case. teach a friendlier Holocaust. What what is a friendlier Holocaust? <laughs> maybe maybe the Germans held the Jews' hands to to the gas chambers. I don't know. Uh, I would assume that the friendly version of the Holocaust would be um, like Shang-Chi, where instead of guns, they all fired like lasers that tied people up. <laughs> I, or maybe the friendly Holocaust is the one where it didn't happen, right? Like like yeah. revisionist history says, right? It, it's yeah. a lie. It's a conspiracy. It never happened. Yeah. But that is an interesting perspective, though. Yeah. Always interesting I, to hear I, I, from I the author himself. Yeah, I definitely yeah. see, like, like I, I can definitely see and agree, like, he's not lying. Like, this book wasn't tailored towards teaching anybody anything because, like, again, we have plenty of modern examples where people, where writers of stories try to pander to their audience, try to, like, like force their message onto the audience. There's no message here. It's simply a personal story about his father's survival of the Holocaust and his relationship with his father um, in, in doing and making the story. Yeah, and the fact that we can read this and learn from it, that that just speaks to the power of his art, you know? Yeah. And and yeah. by art, I'm not just saying his drawings, but like his ability as a storyteller to communicate his father's story as well as his story, you know, with their relationship. It just there's just so much depth to it that I don't see how you can read this and and not be affected somehow. Right. There's actually an interesting parallel I have. 
I have this really good um, math instructor at Ohio State, and he mentioned that the I, like the idea of good research, if you come up with a new idea, is not as just the new idea itself, the thing you're presenting, but when you can take a new idea, and it can also be used to showcase that older ideas are still held true. Like you can still you can still derive other older ideas through this new idea, like through an independent path. That carries a lot more weight because it's it's showing that this new idea has power and use beyond just what you thought it did initially. And mm -hmm. I find that's the same. I, I and I find that that's also true of, of literary works where the author may have had intentional design of like I just want to tell a fun story, perhaps, right? Right. But if they craft it properly, it leaves plenty of room for the audience to pick up and learn or experience something more beyond that too, where there's enough in there, enough evidence, enough, enough you can pick away at to say, this is a deeper book than what it is on the surface. Even though the surface was the intent, it connects more as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's how I like it too, is because it, it, it was like, it's not a book meant to be pretentious. It's just a very unassuming story, private personal story. But we as an audience see more in it. You know, it's not, he's, he's not trying to force anything more on us. Yeah, very true. It's it's not pretentious at all. Yeah, it's no it's no it's no James Joyce Ulysses, right? <laughs> it is not. <laughs> you guys have any final thoughts on mass? I uh, know, no, unless there's something else you want to ask about. No, I I'm pretty content with it. I feel like we've uh, explored all the various uh, concepts associated with it that we can we can think of up to this point. There's very good There's qualifier there. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's work that, like you said, we can read multiple times, and I'm sure that there's a lot of different things that we can dissect, but we did the best that we could. Well, but even just not even dissecting it, I think as we get older and revisit this book at different points of our life, like, we'll probably also have very different feelings about the book. I know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I imagine, like, if I had my own family or, you know, we had kids, like, how would I feel reading this book? In the, in the context of like if i had my own family you know like my perception of of their value to me how i interact with them and how they might you know view their history their legacy you know mm -hmm. yeah uh but i guess what i will just simply say is that you know like uh, if anybody does read this book or has read the book and wants to read it again but they're interested in and depending on how to receive it like if you if you um had a positive response reading mouse I could recommend um, also reading books by Ellie Weasel, particularly the book, the short novel called Night. It was actually my first um, uh, novel I read about the Holocaust uh, from a survivor. Uh, this was at a, also at a Jewish library when I was a kid. Just, I think I was sitting there waiting for my parents to pick me up, and I just picked up the book and read through it while I was waiting. Um, I think I took part of it and finished it overnight, too, because I guess mm. I got really engrossed in it. It was very – it's like – it is very much written for children to read, but it's still it's still it's, a, it's still a lot to to take in, um, like you know the ordeal this person went through, um, yeah. and as work for fiction um, that's based on true events, but kind of the, touching on like times during the Holocaust, surviving as well as uh, eventually like Israel forming as a nation is the book Exodus by Leon Uris. Um, Made, they made a movie about it in the 1960s, and uh, but the, the the book is a is a very also poignant tale about Jewish survival. Um, and for anybody who I guess doesn't like Mouse, um, I'm just assuming that they're an anti-Semitic racist, ignorant shit stain. 
And I would recommend that they remove themselves from this plane of existence, do not pass through the pearly gates, and do not collect $200. <laughs> Albert, you got any recommendations? Uh, well, um, one of the things that came to mind was, uh, you know, since we're we're spending so much time, uh, from the Jewish perspective on the Holocaust and since there's so much of a focus nowadays on getting both sides of the story. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the, I, the, the one thing that I, I thought to recommend was Jojo rabbit. It's a film by Taika Waititi. It's a, it's a really good movie. It's an excellent movie. And it's, it's about a little boy who grows up in uh Nazi Germany, he is a Nazi at the start of the movie, but over the course of the film, uh, he experiences what he experiences, and, you know, coming from that side of the story, what he discovers is, apparently he thinks the Nazis suck too, so there you go. <laughs> but but what's important is that his, his mother is a very, like, caring, loving, and balanced person, and she, like, tries to teach him to, she doesn't force any ideas upon him, but she simply says, like, she teaches him to be a human being and just to think and care. Yeah. I think that, that's a key ingredient that I, that, I, that I found really, like, powerful in that movie. That being said, I did see the movie with a friend of mine, and she didn't quite enjoy it. She thought it was a little too weird. Um, so I, I had to judge her for that because... <laughs> you have I, to yeah. judge her? <laughs> I have to judge her for that because it was a well-crafted movie. It was brilliant. And, I, and even though it's in some comedic, like it's it's a sad kind of comedy, but it's all very it reflective kind comedy. of comedy. Yeah, I I think it's an excellent film, and uh, you know I I think it covers the topic. You know I I I don't think it's the same kind of uh deeply personal story, but it's it's still very moving and still very good. So also of course Schindler's List is something I'd recommend, mm. both the book and the movie. Yeah, Drew. Any recommendations? The only thing that really came to my mind was, for some reason, the diary of Anne Frank. Mm. Oh, I think the scenes in a uh, Mouse Book One, when when you know they're hiding in these different locations and stuff like that, <sighs> really just reminded me of Diary of Anne Frank. Oh, but I'm sure most people have read that. You know, the funny thing is, I only first finally read Diary of Diary and Frank, uh, I want to say within the past, somewhere between the past five to ten years ago. Oh, okay. And I had really it on recent. my shelf for a very long time. It was actually a, a, a birthday present from um, the father of, of an elementary school friend of mine. Um, and I never read it for the, for the longest time. And I think it was after I came back from... Uh, my second stint at Davis as a as a grad student there, and I was I had more free time, and I was like, also I want to get back into reading more books and catch up and stuff. I have my in my personal library, and that was one of the first books I ended up picking up after a long time. Um, def definitely very touching and very like also kind of sad but hopeful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I'm gonna put one more uh recommendation 
if it's I my think... comp, I mean, I won't censor it, but I'll judge you. <laughs> well, okay, so I've got two more recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, with Shanus, if if it means that I'm gonna get judged by him, I consider that a red badge of courage. So <laughs> I will go out of my way to be judged by him. <laughs> what if it wasn't a red badge of courage, but a scarlet letter? <laughs> One man's red badge is another man's scarlet letter. <laughs> uh, but. Another comic that has a similar format, uh, and I I do think it's a pretty personal story as well, is Persepolis, Paris Police. Uh, you know, depends on yeah. who, who's who. You know, who you're talking to, how they pronounce it. But it's by Marjane Satrapi, uh, I think. I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, but it's about a young girl who grows up in Iran prior to the Iranian Revolution, but as she's growing up, she witnesses history basically happening around her. And just that's that's where the similarities kick in, which is, uh, you know, when the when the fall of the Shah occurs and the uh, the Ayatollah and his fundamental fundamentalist government take over the country, uh, a lot of your average Iranians were affected by it. You know, on multiple levels, because it wasn't just that the government was cracking down hard on them, but it was also a matter of uh, regional uh, conflicts were deeply affecting their lives. Uh, they had a war with Iraq. So, um, you know, it was just a deeply personal story of hers as she talked about what it was like growing up under those conditions and, uh, you know, dealing with everything that was happening in her world, both on a global scale, I mean, both on a national scale as well on a, as on a personal scale. So I, I do think it's um, similar to mouse in that sense. Yeah. It's, it's another, uh, it's well regarded. Yeah, it is. It's really I'll well regarded. I haven't, I haven't heard of it. Really? Oh, well, maybe I have, but I just haven't read it. But like, They made a animated movie out of it. And the animated movie is great too. Okay, yeah, I definitely haven't heard of the animated movie. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen the movie, but I I have the the comics, and yeah, those are definitely you never really saw the movie, comics. dude. I still haven't seen the movie, man. I saw it in theaters, and then I remember when Blockbuster was closing, or no, I don't even know if Blockbuster was closing. I think I saw it in, on sale in their DVDs, so I bought the uh, one of their used DVDs. It's a great movie. Nice, man. Yeah, I should I should reread that one. It's a yeah. It's I should read it for the first time then if you guys have it. Yeah, you can always borrow my copies. Yeah. If I can make one more recommendation actually, it also goes back to the time of the Holocaust, but from a Christian perspective. Um so everybody's probably familiar with the with the with the musical Sound of Music. Um Yeah. But but Marie in that in that movie, she wrote a couple of autobiographies about her life and the life of her family after she got married to um to the Baron. Wait, uh, she was a real person. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Okay. I was yeah. not aware of that. <laughs> um, Shanice is educating us, man. 
And yeah, I, yeah. I literally, I picked up those books actually at one of the SF Friends of the Public Library sales that we went to a few years ago. Um, they're like for, they were like a dollar. And oh. I was, I always loved the Sound of Music movie. And so I was curious to read about her story and they were just right there. So I picked them up. Um, and they don't go through construction, they don't, they don't go through construction camp, but you get part of the story is about how they survived and escaped from Austria when Germany took over and tried to force the Baron to serve them in the military. Um, so like, I, I thought that was an interesting story just because you see, you see a Christian perspective and view of, of, of Nazis as well as like their view of also the, like what, what they knew about what, what was going on to Jews in the concentration camps too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I didn't, didn't know that either. I should look into that. Yeah, I, I have the books. I know you guys are busy and like, but the books are the, the, the book. There's only really only a book that covers that period of time. It's not that long, but I, I just thought it was a very fascinating tale about her life. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> get, get, this, get the synopsis. All right, I'm, I got it. I'm yeah. <laughs> I could have lied to you, Janus. I chose not to. I respect you too much. <laughs> uh, you guys are great all right then well if that's all we have to say i guess we will take our leave yeah thank you for joining us and uh you know feel free to message us on uh between the gutters at gmail.com uh, between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or dm us on our instagram you know let us know yes, what your thoughts all are all those of you in tennessee who support the banning of mouths like send them all their hate mail Definitely, I want to hear from you guys. Yeah, because Raging Bert <laughs> will, will get it. I don't know. Time. I haven't thought this out fully yet, but if there's a way for me to digitize my urine so that I can send it to you, <laughs> I would be more than happy to do that. You should uh, make it an NFT and get them to buy <laughs> into it. Absolutely. If it means that I'm going to be taking money from them for an NFT, which I despise as well, all the better. <laughs> it'd be better if you can find a way to make it like an NFT flipbook. So each page you have to buy in order to get the whole story, and it's a flipbook of you just peeing on them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. That's uh... a. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not turning this into some aggressive sexual act. I just wanted to send them my urine. <laughs> Wait, why is it? Why is it sexual? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Just, just... Easy. Because once easy. you said once you said that he would be peeing on them. Albert's mind immediately went to R. Kelly. <laughs> His hero? What? <laughs> Anyhow, I just want to say thanks to both of you guys for inviting me to speak on Mal's on this podcast with you. It's definitely something I, I I would have lamented had I not been able to speak about it. Yeah, of course, man. I'm glad you were able to carve out a little time in your busy schedule to join us. It was great to have you on the show again. We hope to have you again sometime soon, man. Yeah, looking forward to it. Peace out, everybody. Bye.
Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Hey, 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 Albert. Yes? Maybe uh, do that again, because I think you were far from the microphone when you first started talking. Oh, okay. It, like, faded, faded in for some reason. Let me double check where the, where the mic thing is so that I know where to point my tablet. How do I sound right now? Yeah, this is good. I okay. think the closer you are to it, the better it sounds. You want to hear every texture right. of your dulcet tones. That's I want very, to hear your proximity to That's me. very scientific. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Like, when I listen to the recording, I want it to yeah. feel like you are whispering sweet nothings into my ear. I want to almost hear your voice so clearly that I can practically feel your tongue around my earlobe. I uh, don't want that in the slightest. Uh, the very idea that that thought is going through your mind as I speak, it makes me shudder. <laughs> My taint is shuddering. It's puckering? No, it's shuddering. It's different. Okay. It is completely different from a butt pucker. This is my okay. taint shuddering. 